1: Ah, Welcome back to Hertel. Okay, when we want to talk culture and pop culture and movies, this is our guy. He is the maven of the Mendez movie report. See what I did there? You like that? You might want to copyright that. Movie <laughs> Mendez, Louis Mendez, our buddy down in Tampa breathing a sigh of relief because they kind of missed the big one, although the, their neighbors to the south are hurting, but they got through the hurricane all right. Glad to see you, buddy, even more than usual.
2: Hey, I'm glad to be here. Glad to not uh to actually have power to actually be be at my house and it's not flooded. So uh thank God for all that because uh Fort Myers got it real rough. In fact, uh actually my in-laws actually know someone who lost their house just completely flooded and they just they're just gonna quit on it. They're not gonna even bother to try to get the house back.
1: Yeah, it's sad stuff. Fort um for those of you from Logan, um we they thought this Hurricane is going to come in right on Tampa Bay. It swung south at the last second, hit Fort Myers head on, uh, really obliterated those poor folks down there. He's in the Tampa area, but he's our movie guy, so let's talk a little movies. All right, summer blockbuster season's kind of over now. We're in the fall season. We're in awards season. Let's review for a second because this was supposed to be the summer that movies were back, baby. Uh, no COVID, very few restrictions. Everybody's going to come back. I'm looking at the numbers. You know, we're we're data guys. You're a data guy. Our movies back? Because when I look at this list, I see Marvel, I see Jurassic Park, and then I see basically Top Gun, and then there's a whole bunch of everything else. Is that a healthy movie season? Is that the
2: big we're back movie season people were expecting? I mean, honestly, I, I'm pretty cynical about this at this point when it comes to the box office. It's It's pretty obvious that... If it's not a major IP uh, that is knowable for folks, even something like Top Gun, which was a, it, it, people expected it to be a success. I'm not sure they expected it to be this successful, but even something like that, at least it's a known IP with a known name with a known star. If you don't have that, it's going to be really hard for you to make like really big. Noise at the box office. If anyone's made any noise at the box office this year in terms of original stuff, it's been horror. And even horror, you know, you're you're talking about it's a different measure. You're not gonna be making a unless you have like something ridiculous, like the Exorcist or it or the first it movie, you're not you're, your measure of success is gonna be a little bit different than the big big blockbusters, but unless you're doing original horror this year if you're not doing IP you're going to suffer unless you also have something like everyday everywhere all at once which was able to be this big hit with getting legs um incredible success for indie movie but even that only made only made over a hundred million dollars which is like Trump changed the Marvel. <laughs> um, so it, I, I, I think people are coming back to the theaters. The thing is, is that people are selective about what they come back to the theaters to, especially after the pandemic era conditioned them to be more and more comfortable with streaming.
1: Yeah, I think you got a good point. I got a bit of a theory on Top Gun and I love it. this is one of the rare movies I ever went and saw it twice. One of the reasons for that is because the first time I saw it, I saw it in IMAX. and I want to see it in a regular screen because when you're seeing IMAX, you miss stuff like you just can't. There's too much going on. So I actually went to this movie twice. And you know me, I don't like movie theaters. So that tells you something. But my fandom of that franchise aside, I've got a bit of a theory on Top Gun. I think I don't think people did this on purpose. I don't think they got on a message board or social media and discussed this. I do think Top Gun was a little bit of a protest thing for some folks going to the movies of like, yeah, this is the kind of movie we will go out to the movies and see. I I think that it's not a huge thing, but I think it's a something because a lot of people I talk to is like, yeah, that's the only movie I went to this year. I I think there's a
2: little something to that. Yeah, because first of all, it's it's a movie that's just, it, it's entertaining. It's not trying to do any particular message. And while I don't mind a movie that tries to have a message or tries to hit on certain themes, those kinds of movies can end up being inaccessible. If the, if it's not done right, it can be very one note. Whereas this is more of a pure cl- crowd pleaser. Plus, it's not a superhero movie. You know, it's, it's something different than what people have been used to. Um, not just a bunch of cgi green screen stuff going on yes there's visual effects in top gun but a lot of it is practical effects and i think that the industry is responding every bit the way that the audiences have responded because uh there was we had the telluride film festival which is the out of all the major festivals that's the one where a lot of academy voters like to go to And I was listening to a podcast to uh, one of the folks who actually talks to these voters. And what really struck him is how many of them said that they love Top Gun Maverick. And then there was an interview with Quinn and freaking Tarantino, one of all people, who said that it's his favorite movie of the year so far. And that really goes to show you how big of a hit it's been, I think because it does, it is able to stand out. It's not an art house movie. It's a big blockbuster, Every, it's accessible to everybody. And it's not the same old blockbuster that people have seen over and over again the last couple of years.
1: Yeah, to your point, talking to Luis Mendez, our movie Maven, uh, I'm looking at the domestic box office numbers for 2022, you get down to number nine before you get an original thing that is not a franchise or a sequel. And that's the Elvis movie, which is not exactly fr- non-franchise and not sequel. Although it was a unique take. By the way, I actually liked the movie. I know it was pretty, div- but yeah, I, I gave up, it a good review too. But I bring up Elvis because you know what Elvis really was? It was a superhero movie.
2: <laughs> he, I mean, uh, I mean, with the way it was shot and, and some of the things that they were able it's to do. It's a marvel. Yeah. It was
1: a. I was sitting there watching it, and I and I like that. You know, I I really enjoyed it i was able to you know you you've heard me do this i'm a philistine i'm not the fancy critic you are somewhere in that two hours i got to forget i'm watching a movie for at least 30 seconds you know what i'm saying that's just kind of my standard of movie like can i just forget it and get into it for at least a moment i got into that i i thought it was clever you know but i was also sitting there with my kids i'm like this is a marvel movie this is laid out like a marvel movie it has the marvel movie beats It has the dark spots. It has the sarcastic humor. It has the weird cut shot action scenes. That's a Marvel movie. Am I wrong?
2: I mean, no, you're not wrong. But it's also what you might come to expect from Lerman because he's known that when it comes to Boz, it's almost like he wants to make his movies feel almost like you're at a party at the same time. Uh, And and I think that's why he was able to do such a unique take compared to a lot of the standard biopics. I also think it's why it ended up being... Pretty successful, supposedly had a ridiculous uh standing ovation that lasted a long time at cons. Um, I think it's got an outside shot to get into the picture race. I don't quite have it in there just yet. But Austin Butler, who played Elvis, is definitely getting a lot of uh praise for his performance. Uh people are a little more divisive about Tom Hanks in the fat suit, but um yeah, I mean, I personally thought it was a that movie was incredibly fun. Uh, very different than your standard biopic. Uh, I mean, it, if if anybody out there has HBO Max, you can watch it right now. It's on HBO Max right now.
1: Yeah, we actually purchased it because we liked it enough, and the kids have been re-watching it. But to and by, and Austin Butler, even people that didn't like the movie because they didn't like you know the way Baz does stuff, everybody's just like, it's an incredible performance. It really is. He he was really good yeah. in it. But back to the larger point. Okay, that's none of the top ten movies that are not original material. Number ten's Uncharted. That was a video game. You get down to eleven, you get to Nope, which, by the way, is a horror genre.
2: You yeah, know? now that that is original, but very is, ori- too but original
1: sure, by some people's measures.
2: But I would point, <laughs> yeah, uh, I, but I would point out that that is also directed by Jordan Peele, who almost has his own brand name as well.
1: This And by the way, just to finish out the top 15 here, Light light Year, which was very devices from Disney, but that's another franchise. The Lost City, which was original. And if you're too young to remember what Romancing the Stone was, because it was the same movie, except yeah. with F words and, and but uh Bullet Train, which was a remake of a uh, movie from overseas. And then you get down to 15 before you get to the bad guys. I'm just looking at this list, man. Which,
2: by the way, the bad guys is an adaptation of a book. It doesn't get any better from there 16 fantastic
1: beasts that's harry potter 17's dc super pets and then 18's where the Crawdads sings which is a book adaption that's traditionally where you get a big movie you get it from a book adaption you got to go all the way down to 18 and the money gap from 18 to top gun at one is the gdp of most european nations it's ridiculous yes, yes
2: yeah i'm
1: when people on you know i know twitter ain't real life and facebook ain't reality When people are saying there's nothing original at the movies, and that's why I don't go to the movies, there's validity
2: to the accusation, and it seems to be getting worse, not better. I mean, there's validity in terms of what the big studios are giving money to. Now, if you actually go to every weekend and try to check out some of the smaller movies, there's definitely a lot of original stuff out there. Of course, the problem is a lot of folks don't go out to see the movie. Now, sometimes it's because of marketing. Maybe they don't even know that movie exists. That's another big thing. Um, But also, I, I honestly think a lot of people have just been very conditioned to say, "I'm not going to take the risk," especially with the way ticket prices are. We, with the, the situation we got, with inflation, doesn't help either. Where they say, "I'm going to be very careful as to what I'm going to spend my money to go to the theater. Where I'm going to have to buy money for the concessions. I might have, I might, might or might not have to deal with some rude uh, person in the theater who's making the experience uh, difficult." And what's safe? What's safe are the known properties that they know. But when they see this other original stuff, maybe we'll say, well, I know this is going to show up on Netflix. I know this is going to show up on HBO Max. I know it's going to be on VOD in a couple of weeks, especially with the theatrical window getting shorter and shorter and shorter. Um, and I'm just going to catch it at home because it's much more comfortable that way. Um, and I think that's why you see some of these legacy directors who are all big about cinema has to be on the big screen and stuff even they're kind of throwing the white flag and say, fine, we'll do a deal with a streamer. We'll have the movie out on limited releasing theaters. So I get to have my vision on the big screen, maybe do a festival run, but eventually it's going to be showing up on the streamer uh, for people to watch at home. Um, I would point out again, everything, everywhere, all oh, at once, I think it's one of the big standouts of monthly originals. But again, that movie still as much money as it made it's chump change compared to all the movies that you just mentioned um which is crazy to think about when you're talking about movies that are making over a 100 million dollars being like low on the on the box office scale it's kind of crazy to think about just how different the scales have become now that we're getting billion dollar movies here and there but i i just i really really think that the pandemic just kind of help accelerate this trend of that people are just more conditioned to watching stuff on streamers. They're going to be, they're going to be careful as to what they're going to spend their money at the theater for.
1: Yeah. Luis Mendez joining us. This goes back to something we talk to you about just about every time you're on here, the, the movie makers, the creators and the streamers and the, you know, the, the partnership that those things go into because the studios have to talk to the distributors. That's always been the war behind the scenes in movies is the makers and the distributors fighting over what gets out and how it gets out. It seems like we're in a transitional phase where they haven't figured out the business model yet. They haven't figured out that, Hey, this movie is really going to do well on streaming. This movie is going to do really well in the theater. Top gun. They, they, they took like, now you can say, well, it's one of the biggest movies of all time that was an enormous risk to sit on that movie for two years with the amount of budget and the, like you're talking millions and millions and millions of that was a huge risk and it paid off. And then you have these other ones where they're like, well, let's take this big budget thing and put it on stream and it may hit or may not. That's really the fight here, right? They haven't quite figured out the business model of if it's not a tent pole, it's really iffy going to a theater And some stuff they haven't figured out, like, look, this would actually probably do
2: really well in streaming if you just give it a chance on streaming. Oh, yeah. And and sometimes I honestly find myself kind of scratching my head as to why didn't they come out with this on streaming, at least maybe do a same-day release. I've been seeing Universal's been doing that with Peacock of late. Um, I mean, while I do think that there are certain movies that would be helped by theatrical exclusivity, uh, I think there are others that would be helped by the streaming but unfortunately you have some of these filmmakers who are um really really want their movies on the big screen um at the same time also you do have these certain situations like the the mess that's going on with warner brothers right now where they are really like completely overhauling what their plans with hbo max they're dealing with a merger a lot of controversies but then canceling movies that they've actually shot They've canceled for tax write-offs. They've just completely taken things off streaming without any physical media available for that stuff. Uh, so it, it it I agree on the business model that they haven't figured out, but also I think there's a, also kind of this pull as to how much say does the creative, do the creative folks have the filmmakers and such compared to the business model.
1: Yeah, Luis Mendez joining us. And that's the problem because with the technology change and the media change, that doesn't happen in a vacuum anymore. The distributors used to be the gatekeepers. Well, now if you tick off the wrong creator, the wrong creator is going to go on on Twitter or Facebook or, you know, make a TikTok and they're going to flame you. And nobody knows who, you, you know, you the distributor are and this famous director or this famous star or whatever the case may be. The people's going to side with them and now you got a mess on your hands. That's another part of this reality that I don't think they fully dealt with. And we've seen it. We've had whole movies that are probably pretty good movies that go down because of public backlash. This they haven't mastered the social media part of this either, have they?
2: No, I don't. I don't think so either. And and it also doesn't help. And this is not just a movie thing, because I've seen this even in freaking professional wrestling, where I think now that people have social media at their fingertips, sometimes they get really frustrated if maybe something's not making the money that they thought it was gonna be, or, they, or there's some business deal that's going bad. So they go to social media to vent their frustration. Of course, there's a lot different than you venting your frustration on Twitter to say uh, the ice cream machines aren't on at McDonald's uh, like you like to tweet about. <laughs> and now if you, but compared to that and someone Talking about these million dollar deals that they're making with movies and such and their complaints about that. Um, and and when in reality, maybe things are a little nuanced. I know there's a lot of controversy right now regarding uh the writer and, and co-star of the movie bros. He's he's getting really frustrated and um saying things that I think I think it's honestly a much more nuanced situation than he is, but at the same time I get being frustrated and venting your frustration out. Um, and I just don't think, I mean, look, Warner Brothers has been having a horrible social media uh, re- situation regarding the controversies going on on HBO Max. Um, and on top of that, this Ezra Miller <laughs> situation that's happening with The Flash. So I'm not sure that they have gotten the social media part of it just right. Especially because honestly, and if if you're really involved in film Twitter, the people, who, the, the studios don't have much say on the the conversations and the narratives that break out sometimes
1: yeah and let's just deal with the bro thing for a second bro's the movie by the way for folks that aren't paying attention uh billy eichner went out and i don't know anything about billy eichner other than what i've read about him i i didn't see his his stuff when he was doing the online game show stuff and all that i don't know nothing about him other than what i've read i've read some not good stuff i've read a few good things you know he obviously has some talent He's just flaming people for not going out and seeing his movie online. And he's taking the angle on it because it is a romantic comedy about two gay men. So he's taking that angle on it. The thing is, there's probably something to that. But you can see the chart. Somebody on Twitter did it, and I can't credit them, so I don't want to use it. But they did a chart. They're like, look, rom-coms at the theater have been doing terrible for years. It's a declining medium on top of it. Plus, you're releasing a rom-com in the middle of October. Plus, you know, all these other factors in it. This is another one of these where a lot of people online are like, I love this movie, but I wish it was on streaming. These things have a lot of layers to them. And when you have a star, right? And, and I understand it in this case, because this was obviously his passion project. He's starring in it. He wrote it. He's, you know, this is his baby. When When you go online like that, there's a bunch of things that can happen. And almost none of them are good for your project, for your movie, or for your brand.
2: Right, and and to to be fair, I don't think that he's one hundred percent wrong because I mean we know that there are people who don't go yeah. to the movies simply because they believe that they're fighting a culture war and they're not, Absolutely. and Hollywood is a, the enemy and stuff like that. I mean, not, not that Hollywood is pure or anything like that, but the point is is that they they don't go to the movies because of that kind of stuff, and including movies that kind of push some pro- social progressive stuff like this movie technically would. However, the the problem, and I understand his frustration because the movie was very well received at the Toronto Film Festival. It's got great reviews. It's got great audience reactions. You've actually
1: seen it, right? You like the movie.
2: Yes. I I gave the movie a a B plus review. I saw it with my wife and she she ended up loving it also. Uh, It's a very funny movie. Uh, It is a raunchy comedy, but it is a funny movie. But I will tell you, I knew something was up when it was literally me, my wife. Another couple and some random dude. And we went on a Friday night. That's that's when I knew there was maybe this wasn't gonna be making the money they were hoping it was gonna make. I will point out that there was also a gay uh romance movie came out in 2018, Love Simon. And that actually didn't do too bad at the box office, but that was a completely different marketplace. And I would I would say that the last time we had a rom-com that did big money was Crazy Rich Asians 2018. Completely different marketplace. Uh, The Lost City, now technically The Lost City did pretty good, but I would argue that some people don't see that as a rom-com so much as an adventure movie, and they really market it that way, smartly. We've got a big rom-com coming out a couple weeks, Ticket to Paradise, starring George Clooney and Julia Roberts. I have a feeling that movie's not going to be doing so hot at the box office, even with those big names attached. Because a lot of people have just gotten used to, and it doesn't help that Netflix is pumping them out almost every week, watching rom-coms or watching anything romance genre wise on streaming. Because it's, you know, and the Hallmark Channel makes a lot of money off of that kind of stuff too. And I think what's happened is that that is part of it. Another part of it is that there's no big names attached. I never heard of Billy personally until the movie myself. Um, and on top of that, i w- I didn't think the poster was particularly great. it's it's you're just seeing the back of two dudes. um and i I, I just think that while I understand his frustrations, why I do think that maybe there is some homophobia involved in it at the end of the day, you you got all these other market situations going on that was that was going to always hurt this movie,
1: yeah, Luis Mendez joining us. This is a bigger picture kind of question, but it flows into what you just asked, though. Is there so much content now that you've just numbed and fractionalized and niched the audience to death? I think there's something to that line of thought of that. There's just so much content and there's you just mentioned Netflix pumping it out. We're getting ready to get into movie season for Hallmark, which is a big thing in my house because, you know, it is. Um there's so much, there's no way you can watch every movie like people used to do. Like people could say, well, I watched every major release this year. That's gone. That's never happening again. I think there's just a numbing of the audience. I think we have fractionalized the audience. And I think we are trying to now these movies, if you, they're trying to do niche stuff on a big scale and niche stuff on a big scale almost never works. I just think we don't understand the change that the streaming and the media and the technology. I think a lot of people are just numb to big releases. I think they're numb to the marketing. I think they just kind of make up their own mind now. And I don't think any amount of money and marketing is going to change some of the ingrained way the market is now.
2: Yeah. I, I mean, I agree with you 100% on that There's way too much content out there. I mean, I, it's funny because sometimes a lot of my family members will be like, oh wow, so you just watch every movie. I'm saying it's not possible to watch every movie, even as obsessive as I am. It is not possible. Uh, especially TV movies, streaming movies, major releases, art house movies, uh, foreign movies, especially at a time where people are finding more interesting checking out foreign films. Uh, there, there's just too much out there. Uh, if you check out the letterbox. Uh, archives, some movies that, that are coming out. <laughs> it's ridiculous how many are coming out—hundreds of thousands each year. Um, when you really take up the entire globe altogether, uh, and it's also why I personally am dumbfounded that people are still doing top tens. I I say you got to do like a top fifteen because there's too much stuff coming out, and you're gonna. And, and, and to me, I got to do a top fifteen. Other. Uh, in the top 10 if i'm going to talk about my favorites at the end of the year um and and by the way this is something that's happening all across media we've got so many options that it's allowing people to kind of pick and choose their stuff this whether i mean i'm seeing this in professional wrestling i'm seeing this in music i'm seeing this in tv people are we've got so many options now that it's very rare for something to be something where Everybody is watching it, you know. You you've gotten these rare instances, game with thrones becoming this huge pop culture thing. Um uh, you know, and, and and you know, I'm trying to think right now of some it's it's becoming really hard. I mean, because even the simple stuff, you're gonna meet plenty of people who are like, Well, I haven't watched that, I haven't caught on to that yet. Uh I mean I think that the fact that we have so much content, because there are so many choices. Are you an art house fan? There's plenty of art house studios now. Are you big into blockbusters? We're getting a lot of blockbuster from the studios these days. Uh, they're, you know, It's funny, we used to call these event films, but I mean, how much of it is in a, for getting like 10 of them each year now? <laughs> Top
1: Gun was an event. I'll tell you that one, but I don't know that we'll yeah, see yeah. another one of those anytime soon. Lewis Mendez, he's so good on this stuff. We didn't even get to the award season stuff. We'll talk about that next time we have you on, which won't be too long till we get you on, though. Let folks know what you've got going on. You're great. Sir. You're you're becoming Netflix yourself, man. You're popping out movie reviews about every day. It seems like uh, let folks know where they can follow you, where they can keep up with your stuff on social media and your Substack and everything else.
2: Well, basically, if you want to catch all the stuff that I do uh, in the main hub, that is mendesmoviereport.substack.com. If you want to find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or if you happen to have a box, Mendes Movie RPT. uh, I'm... Still trying to figure out something to do with my YouTube. I'm still sitting there, but I'll figure something out. I am very excited about the fact that I recently was accepted to critics groups. So I am going to be sort of a little part of award season this year. So that's going to be interesting.
1: If you get, need YouTube content, call me and I'll explain to you. I will give my well-honed defense of the um, Miami Vice movie. And while everybody misunderstood that great piece of American cinema, cause it was fantastic among other hot takes that everybody hates me for. So give me a call, buddy. Nobody else will come on there with you. I got your back.
2: Oh, Hey, that's fine. Especially when it comes to star Wars.
1: Oh yeah. I just, we just talked to our buddy, Michael Siegel about star Wars. So we, I gotta get you two together. We'll just do a big star Wars round table. One of these days, buddy, uh, Louis Mendez do great work, sir. Thank you for the time
2: today. Hey, no pop. Thanks for having me. Thank you, sir.
1: Uh, welcome back to Tell. Okay, the streak continues. The most seen guest in the history of the Tell program. He has all kinds of letters. After his name, he has those doctor letters in front of his names because he real writes smart, folks. Uh, Dr. Michael Siegel, love to have you back on, oh, my friend. We're going to talk a little science today. How
3: be you, sir? I am good. How are you?
1: I'm fantastic. I'm glad to be actually talking science with you because last time, a couple times you've been on, we've been talking really heavy-duty stuff. Uh, let's talk about something non-controversial like the weather Now i do ask you about this because occasionally on your thursday cleaver puts you touch on things like climate science like climate change like the environment we finally had a major hurricane been a little while so here we go again are hurricanes getting worse are they not getting worse is climate change making them worse is it not making it worse what do we do with this because every time we have a hurricane it seems like we're discussing this
3: over and over again well unfortunately the answer those of you who know me and how i tend to answer these questions the answer is yes and no uh theoretically according to the science hurricanes should become worse because of global warming it's not clear whether they will become more frequent but with global warming you get warmer seawater and that's we are getting that there's no whatever you think about global warming whether you think it's a hoax or whatever The ocean is warming, that's happening. And we are also getting more water vapor in the air, that's also not in dispute. Sea levels are rising, also not in dispute, whatever you think of global warming. And these combined should theoretically make hurricanes more intense, make them ramp up faster, make uh, storm surges worse. The problem with looking at whether the data agree with this is that hurricanes are stochastic. What that is is a fancy way of saying they're random. You can't predict them. You can't even, it's even hard to predict what a whole season of hurricanes is gonna do, least of all when a single one is going to occur. And so I once saw a lecture by Michael Mann, who's one of the foremost climate scientists and his hurricane predictions tend to be the most accurate. And he said, the reason is because they just try to predict the number of hurricanes. They don't try to predict how many severe storms are gonna be because that's kind of a fool's errand. They're just so random and so unpredictable. You can't do that. Now, on average, we get 14 named tropical storms in the Atlantic every year, uh, but that's not a normal year. Sometimes it varies. Sometimes we get as few as seven. Sometimes we get as many as 20. And so, saying whether we get one or two extra, or whether we got an extra intense one—you know, so category four and five hurricanes—are very rare. So then you're talking about one every couple of years or something like that. Saying whether you're getting an increase is really hard because they are so rare. You're talking about rare events. You know, hot days are something that's a much better metric of measuring the effect of global warming because there's 365 days a year and there's we can measure them over the whole planet. And so we can say there are more hot days than there used to be that the temperatures are going up. But with hurricanes, that's much more or just tropical cyclones is probably the more accurate term to use here. They're much more difficult to predict, much rarer, and so you don't get these uh, things. Now, both sides can claim to have evidence to support them. 2020, for example, was the most active year we've ever had with Atlantic hurricanes. We had 31 named storms. Uh, 2005 was second place. We have had a few more Cat 4 and Cat 5 hurricanes in the last 20 years than we had in the previous 20. We also have in, in, in consistent with theory, storms forming a little earlier and a little later in the season than we used to. We've had them forming a little further north. Uh, we just had one hit Canada a couple of weeks ago, uh, which is kind of unusual. And there is some evidence that they are intensifying a little more rapidly than they used to. But the people who say it's not doing it can also point to the fact that the long term trends are flat. We've had spikes before, we've had bad years. Uh, Before the 1970s, the records are a little spotty because we didn't have satellites, so you had to rely on them hitting land or being reported by sailors. But, you know, in the 1940s and the 1920s, we had really bad years. So you can't just take 2020 and say, yes, this proves it and so forth. And ultimately, this is still up for debate. The one thing you can't say, and I see this argument a lot and it's a bad one, is that hurricanes are getting more costly. You know, we're getting more and more money damage. That's not a problem with hurricanes or global warming. That's because we're building more stuff where hurricanes hit. We, you know, you're in North Carolina. I've been, I've been going to the Outer Banks for years and that place has gotten very, very built up over the last 20 years. This is a place that's regularly hit by hurricanes. You know, Fort Myers, there was a, a article on that and how they've massively increased the amount of people and the amount of buildings they have there. That place is regularly leveled by hurricanes. And so we build stuff where hurricanes hit. We have government bailouts when things are destroyed by hurricanes. And then we say, huh, I wonder why we're spending more on hurricane disasters than we ever have before. So that, that has nothing to do with global warming.
1: Yeah, let's do some perspective here. Dr. Michael Siegel, he'd be a scientist joining us. Part of the thing here is you're talking about all those name stores and people are like, well, what do you mean we had all these name stores? I didn't hear about them let's do a big picture perspective. You just talked about the building perspective. We'll get into that in just a second. The Atlantic Ocean is a really big place. And when you're talking about a storm system that predominantly they start basically off the coast of Africa and then work their way across. And then there's a unlimited number of tracks and courses and severities. There's so many variables on these storms before they even get to the tropical depression stage where they start kind of halfway tracking them put a little perspective on that you're you're an astrophysicist look down from the satellite from the space station just looking at that map put some perspective on that because we just like oh it's coming into the coast and it hits america there's a lot before it ever gets to that point and that's why you have you can have 30 storms and nobody in america knows about them because none of them actually hit our coast this is a big area this is a lot of natural stuff going on we have a little bit of a perspective problem here don't we
3: yeah, and, and it's not just the Atlantic, the Pacific. You also get tropical cyclones in the Pacific. We don't hear a lot about uh, a lot about them because the main area that would be under threat is Australia, and they're protected by a barrier reef, which sort of breaks up the storms before they get hit. Um, but, uh, you know, try, so that's why most of the time when you read about this, they'll talk about tropical cyclones because you're, that combines the Atlantic and the Pacific. Most of the, you know, most of the earth is covered by water, and most of these storms will stay over the water, or dissipate over the water, or if they hit, will hit places that aren't America, and we have a tendency to ignore it. Yeah, and You talked on Twitter this week about how hard Cuba got hit, and no one's talking about that because it's Cuba and because Florida got hit, and so we're concerned about that, but there are countries that get absolutely devastated by this.
1: I think some of this is a nomenclature problem. Every time we talk, I always, I always talk about science. I think we have some language problems with science. We learned that during COVID, right? Scientists and the general public don't speak the same language. Let's just be honest here. So when you're talking about are hurricanes getting worse, well, worse isn't a scientific term. Worse is a you know term of relevance. Intensity is a term. Is it getting wetter? Is it getting stronger? Is the winds faster? Those are better means. Is, the term, is there a terminology problem in talking about these hurricanes where we need to be a little bit more specific on what we're talking about? Because there is some data that they are wetter, they're bringing in more landfall. Does that actually make them worse or better? Well, it makes it worse flooding, but it also sometimes means the winds aren't so bad. The, there's a lot of little things in here that we just need to be careful with the technical speech of it, isn't it?
3: Yeah. And if you if you read scientists talking about this, they tend to be very specific about what they're talking about of getting more intense hurricanes. That means higher winds. And that doesn't just mean cat fours and fives. That means tropical depressions becoming tropical storms, tropical storms becoming cat one hurricanes. Uh, They talk about, especially about storm surges, the big thing people are talking about because of the uh, rise in ocean levels. And when you start thinking about it in those terms, the specific terms of what's going on scientifically, that suggests uh, courses of action the uh, that we can take and one of the worst the worst hurricane in american history was the galveston hurricane which hit in about 1900 and killed thousands of people and galveston responded to that by building this massive seawall i've been down there i've seen it uh, to, pr- to protect them from storm surges and with storm surges getting worse we have to be thinking about not just you know in florida and so forth but all up and down the coast what can we be doing to respond to this because whether Whether you think global warming is real or not, whether we can address it or not, the ocean is going to rise a bit. You know, even if we get rid of all carbon fuels today and global warming started reversing, it will still be a while before we will still get ocean level rise for a while. Storm surges are going to get worse. That's one of the things that we should be emphasizing. This is something very specific, very concrete and very damaging. And so we need to be thinking in terms of how do we protect cities? How do we protect people? How do we respond to this very real danger, regardless of what's causing it?
1: Yeah, Dr. Michael Siegel joining us. Part of this also is is the data is spotty. And I don't mean that it's inaccurate. I mean that here's a perception problem again. When you're talking about hurricanes, there's been hurricanes on the face of the earth for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. How far back is our data valid? Is it valid a hundred years back? Is it valid one hundred and twenty years back? Is it, so, whatever standard you have, we have a very small sample size here because yeah, of this that's, temporal that's, stuff.
3: Yeah, and that's what I was sort of saying at the at the beginning that there, you know, some years you only get a few hurricanes, some years you get a lot, and so it's hard to build up the kind of data you need to to really answer these questions specifically in terms of how far back our records go. Um, We have satellite data starting in the 1970s, that's where I would say we're 100% accurate. Um, After that, once you get back into maybe the late 19th century, we have reasonably accurate records. Most of the United States and uh, most of the Americas were inhabited. We had lots of shipping going on, so we had a pretty good track. There have been papers that have tried to account for ones we missed, Uh, you know, Based on on various modeling and so forth, and they show that we you know probably miss some, but it turns out we probably didn't miss a lot before we started putting up satellite uh, data. So I would say the the record is fairly accurate, and it does show in terms of the number of storms over the last century, it's been kind of flat, or at most increasing by you know one a year or something like that. But intensity is something that's a little that uh, we can only measure now that we have radar and We can actually get very accurate wind speeds and so we only have a few decades of data on that
1: yeah dr michael siegel you mentioned galveston this is a good data point the 1900 galveston hurricane because they didn't have named storms there it's just the galveston hurricane in 1900 thought to be the deadliest hurricane in u.s history they don't even really know somewhere between six and ten thousand people died but depending on what number you want to use we're talking about a city of 38,000 people by the way so that's cat- that's catastrophic by any ratio this would have been about a category 4 on the on the current SERIF scale when we go back to like 1900 and something that that's catastrophic two things jump out one is you know that's almost unimaginable in modern terms but how do we compare that because now we have billions and billions of dollars of damage but we usually have a lot less uh, loss of life. We have a lot more data. We have a little bit more warning. We have more recovery systems. Just compare those two from, oh, hey, this boat out in the ocean says there's this big old storm coming to now where it's a six to ten day media event on the national news when a hurricane shows
3: up. There there simply is no comparison between the two. Uh, we the What we have now, and especially since the 1970s, is so is this systematic data that allows us to measure these things to great accuracy, to make these predictions. And uh, you talked about unpredictability. I mean, we always see these hurricane tracks and how they're, it's very difficult to figure out where and when they're actually going to hit. Uh, If, you know, the Galveston hurricane was probably a cat four, but that's not, you know, a particularly intense hurricane. It had, it hit a very vulnerable city. It had a very large storm surge and it had a city that wasn't really prepared for it, but that is now. And that's just not something we have comparable to today, you know, buildings and so forth are more likely to be destroyed now because we've built more things in hurricane paths. But because we have evacuation, because we have mass transport, because everyone has a car and can get on the road and get going, you know, I was in Texas when a hurricane hit Houston. and. You know, it was it was kind of bad because the roads got clogged with people evacuating, but it was just a, as powerful as a, the hurricane that hit Galveston. But the deaths were in single digits because they were warned, because they were evacuated, because our homes are are built, you know, more safer now and so on.
1: Yeah, Dr. Michael Siegel joining us now, one thing that's gotten better, we don't we can't predict when these things start one of the things that we have figured out is once we're tracking them these hurricanes tend to follow previous tracks if you go back far enough you can usually find another hurricane that maybe went at least along the same path. now the intensity is different the size of the storm that's the other thing about these hurricanes is like if you have a 150 mile wide hurricane and a 400 mile wide hurricane those are two very different things intensity levels are different but we've got enough data now you said you know back through the 70s with satellites we've got these pretty well mapped now You know, even Ian, it looks very similar to like Hurricane Charlie and a couple other hurricanes. Once we start tracking them, now we've got some really good data sets to make some decisions based off of.
3: Yeah, uh, we can have more focused evacuations. We can have uh, things in place. We can look at the Waffle House Index to see what's going on uh, and so forth. I mean, just to give you an example, uh, a real life example that my family is familiar with, uh, Hurricane Camille hit Biloxi, Mississippi. Uh, in 1969, and and did an amazing amount of damage. Uh, my father, who was in the air force, moved there, and I was maybe two years old when uh, we went there in the night in the mid 1970s. Then in 1974, Hurricane Carmen came in and womp Biloxi again, but the damage was way less because they learned from Camille what to do, what not to do, how to evacuate, who to keep around, and so forth, and and so on. So, yeah, knowing we know just way more about them than we used to and yeah they do follow familiar tracks but you can also they they do have a tendency to to move and so forth and to and to be unpredictable but the narrowness with which we can have evacuation orders and so forth that does help especially cuz if you if you eva- if you tell people a hurricane's going to hit and you evacuate them and it misses that makes them less likely to obey a future evacuation order if you narrow, it, if you can narrow that down and just evacuate people in a region that is particularly in danger, and they come back and they see the devastation, they say, "Okay, that was a smart idea to follow the evacuation order." And so, having that predictability, uh, even though I think a lot of climate scientists would faint if I had said that we have that uh, predictability, but having better predictability than we used to, and being able to much more narrowly focus our efforts at evacuation and relief and so forth, I think gives a lot more credibility to the warnings and the uh, advice that we give people.
1: Michael Siegel joining us. There has been a little bit of news in some of the scientific uh, corners, a little bit of rumbling. I found this very interesting. I want to get your thoughts on it. That there's, there's a strain of thought that the climate scientists and especially the hurricane folks are getting a little too dependent on the satellite stuff. That it's skewing observations. It's becoming a little bit too tunnel visioned on the data sets and we're losing some perspective on these storms. Is there a danger of stuff like, like any data is like anything else. It can become an idol and you can, you know, lose perspective with it. Is there an, a danger of something like that where it's like, we just look at the satellite and like, oh, it's going to do this, this, and this. And then all of a sudden you get surprised down the road. Is that a concern that's legitimate, do you think?
3: Um, I don't think I am enough into the weeds on hurricane science to be able to say yay or nay on that. You, you definitely want to get as... In general, you want to get as broad data as you can on any subject, especially when you're talking about something as unpredictable and stochastic as hurricanes that that can surprise you. So uh, I'm I'm in favor of an all you know an all of the above approach when you when you talk about getting data on these things. There never is a magic bullet that's going to give you all the information you need.
1: Yeah, Doctor Michael Siegel. Okay, let's get into an area that you really love and enjoy: space you already touched on it briefly, but how much is having this satellite coverage, having that view top down on these storms, just as both as a scientist and as a space geek, this was so revolutionary on how we cover something like hurricanes. It it really is one of those human achievement things that we probably just take for granted now, isn't
3: it? Well, just how we cover weather in general. I mean, our understanding of the uh, weather patterns of the climate overall of what's going on on earth is so dramatically improved by being able to go a few hundred miles up and look down on it you know this is a perspective we did not have until the until the space age and so there there's just it's it's like night and day it's like growing a new sense in 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 how we uh, approach these issues and again not just on hurricanes but just weather in general being able to make predictions of cold spells or rainy days and stuff like that. It's just such a huge uh, game changer.
1: Yeah. Dr. Michael Siegel. It it still strikes me as funny because when we talk science stuff, we all learned in, you know, elementary school science that most of the globe is water. And yet we don't really think about it as water until we get a hurricane or something. <laughs> and most of the damage from the hurricane is not the wind. It's the water. It's the flooding. It's It's the, you know, the massive amounts of rain. Why do we have that cognitive dissonance that we don't understand that we basically live on a water planet with land sparsely scattered around it instead of the other way around? I know that's just kind of ground into us as the human condition, but I just always found it interesting. Is there a scientific basis of that as like why we don't pay more attention to
3: the oceans than we do? Um, that's a tricky question. I, I would say it's mostly because we don't, most of us don't live near the oceans anymore. You know, most of us don't even live near rivers anymore. Almost all human uh, civilizations before, uh, almost all human cities before now were based on access to water, built near rivers, built near, uh, you know, oceans. So they could at least, even if they couldn't drink the water, they could at least fish and stuff like that. or And that was how primary trade was done. You know, we have now cities that basically couldn't exist unless they had, massive dams bringing water into them and uh so i think that's that's changed our perspective uh, a bit
1: yeah dr michael siegel joining us okay something a little more fun when it comes to the weather though um i've been on this tear about it and i want to get your expert scientific opinion i can't stand the meteorologist going out into the hurricane for the live shot it drives me nuts we literally almost got Jim Cantore killed this time because he got hit by the tree branch. And people were like, oh, it's just a tree. No, you don't understand. A three inch splinter and 150 mile an hour wind will cut you in half. Like this is dangerous stuff. You know, I don't want to get overly self-righteous, but to me, and I, I was talking on radio this morning about this, you cannot say this is serious information. That we got to get out to people and then make it a spectacle at the same time, because people are just going to naturally process those two things differently. What's your thoughts on it, though?
3: Um, it's more of a cultural issue than a scientific one. But, yeah, I absolutely uh, agree with this, that having them out there in, you know, when this is something you can get with cameras, you don't need a person out there to be getting thrown around by the wind and so forth. And, yeah, I saw the same clip you did, and I was kind of appalled by it. But, yeah, and a tree branch, let me give you some another perspective on that. When we were li- when we lived in Biloxi, there was a crew that would go around taking coconuts off the trees, and uh, my parents always wondered why they were doing that. And then when Carmen came in and hit, they could hear acorns hitting the side of the building like cannonballs, and it was like, oh, that's why they take them all off the trees because they'd be just you know smashing buildings with that stuff. Anything in that kind of wind becomes a deadly projectile, and he's very lucky he didn't get seriously injured or killed by that, you know, because that's that's. People get killed by branches just falling on them. One picked up and thrown 150 miles an hour, That's that's he's very lucky. And I think that should be, we've been talking about this for years, I think that should be a wake up call to people, look, just stop, we don't need it. It's not adding anything to the conversation to send someone out there and have them struggling to stay up in 150 mile an hour wind just to show how intense it is.
1: It's going to add to the conversation when somebody gets worse or God forbid, you know, hurt worse or something else happens. I'm looking out my office window right now. We were nowhere near the worst of the storm and a 60 foot pine tree laying across my front yard from this thing. Like, you just can't play with storms, folks. Just show them respect. Stay at them. Stay out of their ways. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. Dr. Michael Siegel. Okay. On a very happy note. Uh, I'm always happy to plug your stuff because you're brilliant. You're a good friend. You're an excellent writer at Ordinary-Times.com. You are now a YouTube superstar. You're in the money, my friend. You've got a subscriber count. Uh, Your latest uh, that has gone viral, you did a thing on starships, rating them not only on scientific accuracy, but also the rule of cool. I loved it. I've got a couple of ships that you didn't cover that I want you to for next time, but I'll keep those to myself. But let folks know about the YouTube channel because that went big. and I'm glad it did because it was great, great fun and you did a good job with it.
3: Yeah, it's just under my name, uh, Michael Siegel Astronomy. If you put that in YouTube, you'll find me. Um, I've been sort of had about 150 subscribers and was getting 100, 200 views per video. And then this one just popped up, I guess, uh, probably in people's recommendeds. And so as as of right now, it's had 25,000 views and I've gotten over a thousand subscribers. And uh, it's basically, yeah, I took 20 spaceships from various science fiction franchises and uh, talked about whether they were scientifically accurate or not, but also gave them bonus points if they were cool enough for me to ignore some of the scientific inaccuracies. And uh, it was a lot of fun to make. I didn't expect it to be that popular, but uh, apparently people really loved it because uh I think in part because they can argue with me about which ones I got wrong and tell me which ones I need to include in the next one. Uh, I'm actually now uh, obligated to watch The Expanse because the Rocinante from that uh, series is the most requested spaceship by far.
1: Yeah, I know one of those people that's a mutual friend that's probably bugging you about that, too, but we'll <laughs> leave their name out of it. Um, the thing about sci-fi, I, I kinda, I've kind of taken up to sci-fi and fantasy to a lesser extent, but especially sci-fi kind of like I do pro wrestling, it's like, I know it's not real. I know it's manipulated, but somewhere in there for at least a moment, I've got to be able to lose it and forget that I'm watching something. That's just kind of my own standard. I know rule of cool or whatever, but I was like for, for somewhere in there for at least a moment, I've got to forget I'm watching a show, you know, give me, give me something real inside of the fantasy of it when it comes to space travel. And I know you've talked on this a little bit, but I wanted to ask you it this way specifically because you do know this because you do fly a spaceship, which is just beyond cool. And I'm just very jealous of you. What is it for you that you can suspend belief when you see something like a spaceship, like space travel, something in sci-fi and you go, okay, that's either cool enough that I excuse it or wow, that's an interesting take I hadn't thought of because sci-fi does push the envelope on thinking about, well, maybe that's possible too. There's a little give and take there.
3: Yeah. I think, um, one of the things I look for is imagination, you know, people doing something interesting and having new ideas and exploring those ideas. Another thing is, you know, sort of commitment to the bit. You know, Star Wars is scientifically very inaccurate in terms of the way it portrays spaceships, but it goes into it so unreservedly, you know, and and commits to it such with such uh, grandeur and, is so, and the initial trilogy, at least, is so well-made that you can enjoy the story. And one of the things I talk about sometimes in science fiction is that science fiction writers need to think big and write small. That is, think about big things like galaxies and black holes and massive starships and so forth. But write small in that you focus on the characters and the drama and the situation and having it relatable. You know, if you make me care about the people in a story and make the story interesting and something I wanna I wanna watch and I wanna see the next episode because I want to know what happens, I'm gonna forgive a lot than if the characters are boring and I don't care. Then no matter how accurate it is or how spectacular it is or how much you spent on the special effects, if I don't care about what's happening, I'm not gonna watch the next episode.
1: Yeah, it's funny. We were we were debating the entry uh, intro. <laughs> Sorry. We were debating the uh, opening scenes of the movies, which ones was the best. And people, when it comes to sci-fi, people talk about the original Star Wars, A New Hope. And um, George Lucas stole this from Kurosawa. But anyway, that opening shot of the starship. But then when you have Vader walking in and I mean, it's very unsettled. You have a pure white hallway and the guy in all black comes walking down the hallway, stepping over dead bodies. You don't need dialogue. You don't need it. It's almost, you know, the old Panama theater, like just the black and it's literally black and white. You know, the good guys, the bad guys, everything is explained to you without any dialogue, without any cues, without anything else. You don't even need to know that it's a spaceship. It's a tableau. And, you know, everything you need to know in that one moment. And if you are even though you're doing sci-fi and light speed and all this crazy stuff, you got to have that moment that sets everything else. And then it works because now you're sucked in.
3: Yeah, and Vader has another great entrance in Empire Strikes Back where it's showing the fleet and it shows him. And someone pointed out there's a sort of subtle display of power there that he's filmed from the back as if he's too cool to actually have to look at the camera. And um, yeah, James Lilex, the writer, had a great point about um, when he was writing about the prequels. He said, Star Wars works best when it's almost like a silent movie that you have Lucas's visuals and John Williams music and you know it just flows from there. And when especially when you look at the at the movies that Lucas made, when it flows like that, you could almost turn off the you could almost make it a silent movie and it would be just as good.
1: Yeah, I I actually worked off that too when we were talking about the Mandalorian. I was like, oh, they figured one thing out. Stop talking. <laughs> like, just stop talking. Uh, it, another one was uh Downton Abbey that everybody, they, when they did the second movie uh, uh, fellows that created the series, he goes, he goes, I have the first five minutes of every movie. All I need is a sweeping wide shot in that score of the house. Yeah. Like, that's all I need. Like <laughs> you can't, you can't write anything better than that. And it's the same way with star Wars. Like, you know, you have those shots of Vader, you have those shots of those, you know, that first shot of the starship moving through space, which remember back then, nobody had ever seen that it's cliche now. Nobody had ever seen that. That was blowing people's minds. People were losing their minds in the theater. You don't have to say anything. Just let the moment breathe. We have too many movies and TV shows that don't let anything breathe. It drives me nuts.
3: Yeah, and I speak especially with, this, uh, with the tendency to rapidly edit and cut from shot to shot to shot so you can't really tell what's going on. That's one of the things, no matter what people will say about the prequels, Lucas's sense of letting the shot play out, letting you see what's going on, letting you get an understanding of how the situation is laid out like in a battle which where the sides are what they're fighting over that um you know you can criticize his dialogue and some of his plotting but his visual sense and being able to tell a story visually which is something you mentioned kurosawa something he very much borrowed from kurosawa who had that ability uh that's that is unchanged
1: yeah and i i enjoy star wars um I'm enjoying most of the expanded stuff they're doing. They've had some hits and misses, but for the most part, it's been pretty good. They went back to being serialized, and it just works better, I think. But that's another topic for another day. I will openly petition, as I have privately, for you to do a Starship Captain's one, because as a scientist, that ship ain't going anywhere without a Captain. And boy, howdy, have we had some shoddy-looking sci-fi captains that we need to deal with. So... Can't get anybody else to talk about call me. I'll come on there and talk about that one because I got a couple that I just I'm ready to drill from pillar to post or whatever it is they use in space. My friend, Michael Siegel, let people know where they can find you, your writings, your uh, now monetized YouTube channel because you're making the big bucks. It's not enough that you got all those letters after your name. Now you're going to be rich and famous, too. I hate (laughs) you. Uh, Let folks know where they can follow you, my friend.
3: Uh, basically just go to www.ordinarytimes.com. That's where my writing is. I post all my videos there. So that will give you the links to the YouTube channel and also to, uh, Twitter and so forth. I I like to have ordinary times as sort of my, uh, gateway since one, it makes things easier, but also highlights the amazing work. A lot of the other ordinary times writers do as well.
1: Yeah, we got a good group. Always appreciate your time, sir. It was good talking science, not politics for a change. We've been doing a lot of politics with you lately. Do it again soon. The street continues. Well done. Uh, Glad to be on. Thanks for having me. Thanks, sir. Oh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, he's our go-to guy when we have to talk this tech stuff, especially when it comes to tech stuff, when it intersects government, when it intersects intersects when it intersects legalities, when it intersects the market, all this kind of fun stuff. James Jernowski, he's great at it. Great having you back, my friend. How are you, sir?
4: I'm doing great, thanks for having me.
1: Uh, you're the best. Okay, it seems like we've been talking about this for the better part of the year because we've been talking about this for the better part of the year. Elon Musk is actually kind of sort of going to really for realsy this time going to buy Twitter,
4: right? I think. <laughs> it's been nothing short of a turbulent time when we look at the the progression of events that, that is Elon Musk and Twitter, right? He wanted to go and buy it. Then he got a little cold feet with the bot data. Then he tried to sue uh, to go and get that information. And then Twitter tried to force him to get into buying the company. And now that, you know, the, the chancery court trial is coming up soon and he's due for deposition to talk with Twitter lawyers. Um, you know, he's putting out this offer to go and buy, uh, Twitter at the original offer that he made, uh, contingent upon the company withdrawing their lawsuit to force him to buy Twitter. Uh, so it's been a fascinating ride to say the
1: least, Andrew. Let's try to turn the noise down on this a little bit. James Hernowski, our go-to guy. I love having him on. i just, I'm tired of talking about this particular story, to be honest. How much does the chancellor court have to do with this? Because like you said, it's coming up in two weeks. Most legal folks think that the court was going to enforce a sale in some form or fashion. How much of a factor is that, especially when you look at the timing of this thing?
4: Yeah, I think that that was certainly a factor. I I don't know. I think the the common question that was asked was even if the chancery court had said that you must go and perform your duty to honor this contract and buy Twitter, whether or not Elon would have complied with that order was certainly a question that was being raised um, because of just the sheer size. Like They've certainly done this in the past, but not to a deal of the magnitude of what Twitter would have been. Um, So I think that there was that kind of a question that was circulating in the background. But I also, part of me thinks that Elon Musk, uh, certainly as, as I think some people were aware, uh, his texts that he had exchanged with numerous people, uh, became public recently. Um, and I think that, you know, it was just something that he'd rather not go and see, uh, go and have to come out again, uh, with more, uh, and then also just his deposition too. I don't think that he wants to be in that position. I don't think his lawyers want him to be in that position, Um, So I think that it makes sense for him. And I've always held the position that I thought that the deal was what was the best path forward for all parties, because at the end of the day, Twitter is a company that's struggling as its current form is as it is. Right. Uh, And Elon Musk is the person that's willing to do it. And you're going to get somebody else that's willing to pay 5420 a share uh, for Twitter right now.
1: Okay, that number is important, James Zernowski. This is the part of the story that almost nobody talked about, but you talked about, we talked about this way back when this whole saga first started. Everybody's like, well, why in the world would Twitter want to do this? It's very simple, money. Uh, Basically, I've got some data here, brother, and you can explain this to me a little better because you're better at this stuff than I am. But if you took Twitter as a standalone company with the profit loss margin it has, with what it makes, with what it brings in, It lost $221 million in 2021. Its revenue was somewhere around $5 billion. The stock price bounced between 31 and 69. That's because of the Musk stuff, so it was all over the place. So A normal company, you would rate that company somewhere in the range of $13 to $15 billion. He offered them $44 billion. That's why the company wants to push this through. They're never going to get an offer as good as this, especially for a company... It's not Facebook. It's not Meta. They're not making money hand over fist. This is the best deal they're ever going to get, probably by a factor of two or three, right?
4: Yeah, um, right now, if you look at it, at least by the, the the Dow Jones price point of Twitter versus what uh, Elon Musk offered to buy it, it's like a 20% premium uh, on the shareholder price that they want to go and offer there. And I think part of the reason why Elon made that aggressive offer is that it was a way to counter a defense that Twitter might've employed to stop him from getting the deal um, because they have a fiduciary responsibility to present this to shareholders. And if they're going to go and say no to the deal, they would have had to have come up with another plan for it. And I think that when Musk made the offer, he did, it was in part to try to force their hand to not really be able to employ some of those strategies. Um, So I think that, when we're looking at it, yeah, Twitter, you know, especially if the Musk deal fell apart and he had to go and pay all kinds of fines and fees and breakups, uh, you would not find a buyer for Twitter that was going to go and pay 40 some odd billion dollars for it. So, yeah, this was a bet. This was a great deal for Twitter, uh, obviously. And now, assuming that everything goes and, and moves forward, uh, it'll be interesting to see how this all transpires.
1: Yeah. James Janowski joining us. All right. Everybody wants to project what's going to happen. Let's assume Elon Musk does take over the company, or at least on paper is the owner of the company. Let me play the other side of this because I'm more Elon skeptical than you are. Mm -hmm. Let me pitch it to you this way. Elon Musk, we have quite a bit of book on him publicly now. He chases shiny objects. He gets obsessed with something for periods of time, and then he moves on to some other obsession for a period of time. He's kind of taken some lumps on this. He's taken some black eyes on this. This has gone on way longer than they thought. Is part of this possible that he does take over the company, but he also kind of loses interest in it and it, and it's going to hurt financially because he's paying a lot of money for it. He's, you know, he hears stuff like this. Is there a possibility that he does buy this, but ends up staying rather hands off with it for the foreseeable future? And there may not be a huge amount of change, at least notable change anytime soon.
4: Yeah, I, I think that this is actually where we have a little bit more agreement than, than you might realize because I don't want Elon being very hands on on Twitter because he's already running Starlink. He's already running Tesla. The man is running like a chicken with his head on uh, trying to go and, and manage all of this and adding on Twitter on top of that, which, are, which is in a radically different vector of business types. Uh, I think that that would not be great for Twitter. Tesla or Starlink. And I think for Elon, the best strategy moving forward, and it remains to be seen that this is what he does, but I think that he needs to identify people that, you know, he believes in his vision and that he thinks that they can go and execute on that vision that he has for the company. Um... Which apparently is an everything app, whatever that means. So, uh, I, I think that if I were if I were in his shoes, and if I'm even just an outside investor or, or a person that's like looking at this elsewhere, I would want to see Elon not necessarily being so directly involved. Maybe he has a, obviously a role on the board and uh, you know keeps the praise of matters that way. But I think that it's in his best interest to let other people run it uh, and try to execute his vision for this app.
1: Yeah, James Arnowski joining us. I I think there's a part to that because running a social media platform as big as this, it takes an army of engineers to do this. The minutiae and the data sets and what it actually does, I think he's going to get bored with it. I don't think he's going to want to really get hands on with some of that. stuff. I think he probably ends up delegating some of this. Uh, One other thing towards that point, though, you were tweeting about this and I thought your point was excellent. You were responding to Ben Collins, who's uh, MSNBC's tech reporter. A lot of people freaking out about Musk in the political and cultural sense, owning Twitter. I'm more concerned about it because I think he's erratic as a business leader more than his politics. A lot of people are worried about the politics of it. You made a great point and you said everybody needs to calm down. I'm quoting you here. You are putting way too much stock in Twitter. Only about 25 percent of Americans use Twitter and a fraction of that, which would include folks like you, because he's a professional reporter, uh, as are we adjacently, we must point out. Produce over 99% of all the content on the site. Twitter is not real life. Stop. I agree with you on this. I love Twitter. I see that there could be a potential problem because of the way Musk conducts himself. But I also understand Twitter's mostly, it's almost there's an institutional part of Twitter that drives most of Twitter that's going to react to Musk. I'm not sure Musk is really going to be able to control it. I think everybody probably does need to calm down
4: a little bit as far as the doom and gloom, don't you? Yo, absolutely. And I've always been very consistent on this point. I think that Republicans are probably holding it up as a as a holy grail a little too much. And I think Democrats think of it as like a meteor way too much. I think that a uh, Moscow on Twitter is going to look different than Twitter in its current form naturally because it's a different ownership team uh, that's going to be handling things. So that's there's going to be some divergence, but I don't think it's going to be some radical departure from what we're seeing right now, I think it would be a lot closer to what Twitter is right now than it is going to be, let's say, from like a parlor, uh, which is where you start hearing some of the the lichens getting dropped when when he talks about this or people talking about this deal. More broadly speaking, I don't think that that's what we would see here. I think that, you know, Elon does want to allow for more discussion to be up more broadly speaking but I don't necessarily think that that means that this turns into a cesspool platform and again to, to the point I do think that people put too much stock into what goes on on Twitter in terms of the impact it has on elections etc that's just a personal feeling I'm not sure that that's like you know something that can be bore out by the data but I wouldn't be surprised uh you know if if it didn't have as much of an impact as people thought it did.
1: Yeah. And I, first of all, I'm biased here because I love Twitter. That's my primary platform. I do everything on. That's what kind of got me into all the things we're doing, including doing this show and my writing stuff. I want it to continue kind of as it is. I also know it can't just business wise and technology wise, but I think we all need to have a little bit of faith here. And I'm, I'm, I'm an Elon skeptic. So I, I'm concerned, but I don't think we should pay Plus he's going to have a lot of eyeballs on him when they have those first couple of meetings and they see what's in, because here's the thing. When I, he says, Oh, Well, make this happen, then he's gonna get a, you know, six hundred slide PowerPoint of okay, here's all the technical stuff we need to make that happen. And then things change. That doesn't make for good copy, but that's how those things go, isn't it? You're you do the backside of this. That's what doesn't get reported on. And that's gonna be kind of a guardrail in its own fact that
4: look, this this is a massive platform. It's not gonna change overnight, even if you wanted to. No, you're absolutely right. That's always one of the chief problems. Like, it's very easy to be a critic as an armchair CEO, it's a lot different to be in charge of the ship in question here uh to your point there's a lot of technical difficulties that come with managing uh social media companies that i don't think necessarily translate over to the other companies that he works on right now i think that you know those kinds of problems are unique and you know it'll be interesting to see how he goes and tackles those issues but to your point uh you know you like twitter as it is i certainly don't necessarily have much issue with twitter as it is but my, my running thing that I like to tell people about this is, you know, because some people wanted to go and say, well, Twitter was like one of the best platforms for civil uh, civil management of like, you know, hate speech, etc. And I'm like, well, you can only be who you can afford to be. And Twitter could not afford to be the company that it is right now. And that's why you're seeing the change that's going to likely come should Elon Musk uh, actually take over Twitter. So that's just the reality of the situation. You, you can really only afford to be who you can actually be, right?
1: Yep, and I'm right where I've been. Uh, I love the SpaceX stuff. I'm skeptical of the Tesla stuff, and I'm kind of apprehensive about Twitter, but we'll see where it goes. I'll try to keep an open mind. You keep pitching Elon Musk to me, though, and I'll keep fighting back, and we'll keep having great conversation about it. James Arnowski, you're the best buddy. You've been very in demand because you're just that good. Let folks know what you've got going on, where you've been, until we get you back on Hertel again real, real soon
4: yeah yeah i've just been traveling around doing the circuit talking about the good the good lord stuff of uh tech policy and what's going on you can follow me on twitter at james cz19 always a pleasure talking with you my friend and look forward to coming on soon again
1: yeah we're gonna have to dish out this uh 230 thing because everybody's losing their mind and they don't understand that this this supreme court hearing is going to be very narrowly focused to terrorism so we're going to dig into that one with you pretty soon james Arnowski, follow him listen to him he's got good stuff great talking to you my friend great
4: talking to you take care sir
1: Uh, welcome back to Hertel. We just got done having fun with technology with our friend Curran Nusi, and uh, it was all behind the scenes stuff, so that's why we're laughing. Great to have her with us. Going to talk a little bit about the UK. Been a while since we've had you. How are you, ma'am? Great to have you back.
5: Good. In a different country this time, so it's feeling like I'm talking about UK policy in the United Kingdom versus the US for once.
1: Yeah, you're hard to track down because you're one of them world traveler folks, but that's good because we like the perspective on it. Let's start right there. Uh, We're going to be working off your piece, The New Statesman. We're going to talk a little bit about freedom of speech, restrictions, online restrictions of things, especially with technology. But perspective is a big deal here because, especially the American audience, we have a very innate sense of freedom of speech because of the way our system of government, because of the Constitution, because of the way we grow up with those freedoms. That's not the same everywhere else, though, is it?
5: No, I think the biggest difference when it comes to free speech is America has the First Amendment and can look at the First Amendment and the Bill of Rights as kind of the starting point for civil liberties. Whereas in different countries, especially in the UK, it's just a completely different legislative system and a completely different way of talking about free expression.
1: Yeah. And this kind of goes to a lot of things is because Right now in the U.K., there's a lot of turmoil, political turmoil, economic turmoil. We just went through the things with the passing of the queen. You know, when I do my spiel for somebody like you on this program, I tell you, hey, this is we have a little different rules here in America than we do in the U.K. There's things you can say. There's things you can't say. There's things I can say doing U.K. media hits that I can't say in America when I go to U.K., Uh, They talk a lot about liable laws. Like there's certain you can't talk about people a certain way on UK media that I can say in America. They can cuss. We're not supposed to be saying naughty words on that. It's a very important distinction when we get into rights, though, understanding that when you go over there or when you're over there and come back over here, it's really different. And the laws are reflecting that as well
5: yeah i think the way that we talk about free expression in the united states we've got how do we moderate content online how do we talk about speech and protest culture and the ability to say things in public and then when you talk about the united kingdom just a completely different legislative structure so where i come from the world of tech policy america when you talk about what you can say or moderate online you're talking about section 230 but in the United Kingdom, they don't really have the equivalent of Section 230 and are currently trying to create what they think is a world-leading online safety law, the online safety bill. Does it function the same way as you'd expect speech regulation to function if you were an American? I don't think so. I think it's a completely different beast that focuses a lot more on regulating types of content and defining what types of content should or should not be online um, versus a more free speech focused perspective that would be grounded in the first amendment or grounded in a free market if that makes sense
1: no it does karenuthi joining us she's a senior policy analysis at the information technology and innovation foundation center for data innovation you gotta get you a nickname or an acronym in there somewhere that's a lot um let's go to what you said in this piece though. One of the things that we get into with these, and you kind of lead off with it, people want to talk about what's legal. People want to talk about what's harmful. People want to talk about what should be legal and harmful, what should be illegal because it's harmful. That's kind of the nut of a lot of this. It's how do you do speech? What do you do with it? You lead off with it. So why did you use that as an entry point to talk about this particular piece of legislation?
5: I think... It's a great way to talk about the piece of legislation because at at its core, the online safety bill is a set of legal obligations proposed um, on online services to moderate various forms of content. Now that's not just what is illegal online and what is illegal offline. It is legal and illegal content on user to user and search services. So when I say user to user, it's like you and me talking to each other online. Um, at its core. And then search services being the classic search engines. How do I <laughs> Google something or Bing something to figure out what's going on? It moderates through types of content, illegal content, not necessarily meaning cr- prim- like classic criminal offenses. Um, it's supposed to be priority illegal content and content defined within the bill as new criminal offenses on top of already illegal offenses and then we've got what is classified as legal but harmful content. Some people distinguish this as content harmful to children. I tend to group this with the content harmful to adults also covered within the online safety bill. It is content that presents a material risk of significant harm to an appreciable number of children or adults in the United Kingdom, which if that sounds like a mouthful, it is Um, But it is also a subjective mouthful of like what services must do for a list of content that has not been clearly defined yet. (laughs) Uh, And maybe in a lot of aspects should not necessarily be what's getting regulated.
1: Kernuthi, joining us, you point out that this is a very expansive proposal. They're not just talking, people start talking about content. They're thinking, you know, YouTube, they're thinking Twitter, Facebook, things like this. This goes way past this. This goes into peer-to-peer stuff. This goes into WhatsApp, Signal, iMessaging. These are things that have end-to-end encryption things. They're supposed to have, they're actually promoted as having privacy and security to them. And this is what they want to get into is the content required in that. Now to the average person, those are paramount to private individual conversations. This is where this starts getting really sticky because yes, technically it's content on a platform that you agreed to use on. The government are looking at trying to regulate that and people are going, wait a minute, this is my personal free speech this is the swamp of this sort of thing. This is where it gets really complicated. Yeah.
5: Yeah. I mean, this bill is, as you mentioned, incredibly expansive. When you think about online content moderation or like online regulation of free speech, I think the classic things that pop up, at least in my head are social media. So like, where do I post online to my friends and my followers, what I'm doing or what my dog's been doing that day. But the online safety bill, goes beyond that it is covering user to user services that include traditional social media traditional forums but also something that i find incredibly worrying that's being covered over the top messaging platforms so these are platforms that don't necessarily need your phone number to work but work over the internet to send messengers Um, it's your classic signal whatsapp those messengers that you download onto your phone after you've gotten your smartphone to talk to your friends. Um, A lot of these platforms use end-to-end encryption to make sure that only the users who are communicating with each other can read the contents. So if I was to message you, only I and you could read the content, not the service, not some random person on the internet. Maybe somebody looking over our shoulder could read it, but like that would be incredibly unlikely and also I'd be worried if our friends were doing that. Um, But covering that sort of content increases the privacy risks and increases privacy vulnerabilities in the space because it's essentially not compelling, but de facto compelling, like incentivizing online services to weaken their protections and to remove the privacy safeguards we've come to expect on these services because it needs to now follow this incredibly expansive platform regulation regime. That's called the online safety bill.
1: Yeah, Kerr Uthi joining us. I'm noticing a pattern here, whether it's this online safety bill in the UK, uh, some of the regulatory measures in the U.S., the Supreme Court's getting ready to look at the 230 in, in a very, people are losing their minds, but it's a very narrow scope involving terrorism overseas. So I think that'll be a little more narrow, but there's going to be more cases behind that. I'm noticing a trend here. Tell me if I'm wrong. When it comes to the, those content, let's just take something like a WhatsApp or something like that, end-to-end encryption, private messages, because that feels more personal to people. When it comes to that, though, these bills, you know, we know these companies are content companies. The old saying: if it's free, you're the product, right? So these these are information companies. They scan this stuff for the information. They want your personal information to sell off to other people. They want those demographic numbers. However, when it comes to this legislation, they always seem to want to lean towards putting the burden, and these are legal standards, so let's just use the legal term. They seem to want to put the burden on the individual users instead of putting some regulation on the companies that are using these for data collections. To me, it would seem like better legislation would be the company end of this instead of punishing and going after the individual rights of the, of the users. That looks like a trend, so that looks like that's purposeful to me. Do you see it differently?
5: I think it's a very hard square to circle. (laughs) Um, I think the online safety bill really does focus on getting online services to regulate the way that parliament and the coalition in power at that moment think is best, be that with regards to free expression or with with regards to privacy. But I think at the end of the day, regulation like this is going to make users lose if the bill passes as is we're going to face it in the uk and probably extraterritorially in the us and internationally incredible changes in what we can and can't say online and also incredible changes in what services are allowed where um, especially with regards to encryption if the bill passes and it covers these platforms we've already seen services say, well, this is too much. Let's just think about hypothetically refusing to listen to the mandates. Um, Will Cathcart of WhatsApp came out publicly saying that WhatsApp's got an amazing track record balancing online safety and public desire. So he wants to make sure that his company and what he is head of does not count out to the mandates within the online safety bill. That to me sounds like If services are forced to give up these security protections, they might just give up the United Kingdom, which at the end of the day might not hurt a very large business, but will hurt users within the UK more.
1: Yeah, Kernuthi joining us. You just touched on it. I think an important piece of this is understanding the UK's role in the world with things like this. Outside of the United States, this is the English speaking center of business, of commerce, there's a lot going on. Laws in the UK have far reaching effects because London is a financial center. We saw it with the Russian regulations was a good example. Um, how many of the Russian olearchs that were getting sanctioned, how many of them have places and businesses in England all of a sudden, you know, everything from penthouses to soccer teams to almost all of Belgrave Square, you know, there, the laws in the UK are wide ranging. Speak on that because if you don't have a freedom of speech, if you don't have tech protections in one of the financial hubs of the world, and also where a lot of dissidents from foreign countries flee to, they go to the UK. A lot of them do. This could have some far ranging implications far beyond just free speech online. This has political ramifications. It would have financial ramifications. The UK is a world leader on this. And I think that's a perspective they need to keep in mind because like you said, if these companies start giving up the UK that's going to have a lot of ripple effect.
5: I think that's exactly a scary part of the bill. Um, the bill's regulating services that have a significant number of UK users and or treat the UK as a significant target market for their service. I can't think of an online service that wouldn't often, to one of those, at yes. least as like part of their long term strategy goal, like say it's an American company that focuses only in America. If the goal is to go internationally the UK is always going to be a natural market to add Um, which means this bill will have extraterritorial impact Um, kind of the same way that we see the content moderation laws like section 230 get mentioned in international news we're going to see the online safety bill get mentioned in international news because It's hard to regulate the internet as just a country. Um, I'm talking to you from the UK and you're talking to me from the US, international content right there. What I say on Twitter will go far past the boundaries of the country I currently live in. Um, And that is just the nature of the internet. It was designed to be international. So any regulation in this space is going to have ramifications. So if something's not allowed, in one country because it's on a list of content that needs to be moderated it might be easier if that just slowly becomes the norm for everyone that's why it's incredibly important for online services and for governments to focus on free expression and privacy as things to think about and consider when they're making regulations i'm not going to say that It's possible to protect both. There's significant trade-offs between online safety and civil liberties. You can have free expression and you can have privacy, but you have to choose what you're going to protect when it comes to regulation and undermining free expression and compromising user privacy the way that the online safety bill does. I don't think there's a win in there right now, and that's why it needs to be amended.
1: Yeah. And you touch on it. uh, Karen Ruthie joining us. Let's just take a real world example here. Uh, We're getting ready to have a court case. The Supreme Court's going to take up a terrorism case with uh, Section 230. There's built in things to this bill. Let's just use the example. If you have a country like Iran where there's known terrorist activities, well, we need to be able to read the encrypted messages to see if there's terrorist activities. Well, there's also things like the LGBT community where that can get you killed if that information gets out. That's where this stuff gets really hard because it's like, okay, people that are protecting privacy isn't just a buzzword. It's something that's saving their life. That's keeping them alive. That's, you know, political dissidents, the same thing. Countries where the LGBT community is outlawed. Uh, You pick anything you want, dissent in Russia, dissent in Ukraine, you know, pick whatever you want. The real world ramifications of this stuff. Those are also going to be the same places where they're going to argue things like, well, we need to look for terrorism. We need to look for criminality. You said it a minute ago. I don't know how you square that circle. I really don't know how you square that one, because there's no way that you're getting in that water without getting the clean and the dirty at the same time.
5: I mean, that's why anonymity is it's a hard topic to talk about, but it's so important. Arab Spring, Black Lives Matter, dissidents, human rights activists, abuse survivors, LGBT youth who don't feel comfortable um coming out yet these are mar- these are diverse communities that rely on platforms that use privacy safe rides like end encryption to keep their content to themselves opening those spaces up to now new regulation which would potentially introduce weaknesses puts those communities at risk and that is a situation nobody who relies on anonymity should be put in. Um, It's maybe on the extreme end of examples in the sense of like threats of persecution and violence being critical to anonymity, sure. That's why including private communications in the scope of the online safety bill is just so damaging. It's real world harm and real world issues that are a matter of safety. Um and choosing to protect people and create online safety in one regard while also opening up this chasm of privacy issues is not a solution.
1: here Nurthy joining us let's zoom back out for a second just the overall state of things like rights and free speech in the uk right now of course there's the possibly apocryphal famous quote of you know you're in england you're free you can be a villain in england but you can't be a slave this kind of legislation worries people because they're worried about if your private communications are taken away if you're internet, which is a huge freedom that's new to the world and new to most people, but now we have generations of people that are used to it. If that freedom of information and knowledge starts getting taken away, they're going to start feeling more slave than just a villain with this kind of legislation. What's the overall status of rights and free speech and the information age in the UK today as it currently stands?
5: It can be really interesting um, in the sense of What I remember, um, the Euro Cup, there was all of that hate getting popped out on Twitter, um, but then a few days later, people were arrested for their tweets. Um, I remember when I was growing up, there was the news headline of the dog um, whose owner got arrested for making his dog promote incredibly horrible anti-Semitic things. Social media and conversation on social media has offline impact in the UK. 11 people were arrested after the Euros last year for being suspected of sending messages on social media. The messages on social media were disgusting. Like no one should be as hateful as the hate getting spewed during the Euro Cups, but also people got arrested for what they said online in a way that I, as an American, can't think of a direct parallel of a sporting event leading to arrests because of social media speech.
1: Yeah, I've, I've talked about it before because obviously America has its problems with things like race and hatred and prejudice and bigotry and these things, but then it also sounds like we don't have to have sports events in front of empty stadiums over it either. Which happens frequently in Europe. I mean, I've I've seen that in person living over there before. I look, I I could get on my high horse here. I don't know how you solve some of these problems. I do know this part of it though. I know that there's no version of this where everybody's solution isn't going to be the government has to use a lot of power to fix these problems. That's that's how all these are going to end. And my fear is anytime you go to give the government power to fix a problem. That's when abuses start, that's when overreach starts, and that's where the accountability stops. Is that a legit fear with this legislation as you've laid out?
5: I think this legislation is incredibly worrying for the amount of power it gives government officials. It has a, the online safety bill gives, in my opinion, far too much discretion and far too much power to the Secretary of State for Digital Culture, Media, and Sport, Secretary of State being the MP in charge of. Digital culture, media, and sport, they and the regulatory agency charged by the online safety bill, OFCOM, um, which is, I think, an acronym for the Office of Communications, but is really like the telecom and media regulator. Those two government institutions, one being a person and one being an agency, have the ability to change the rules. They have the ability to look at the legislation and then define what is legal but harmful and define what is illegal. The secretary of state specifically has the ability to essentially redefine what specific content the online safety bill is, duties of care. So like what content is supposed to be removed or moderated or proactively explained in terms and conditions, essentially changing the standards of what can and can't be allowed online, or must be specified in terms of conditions, based off of what I consider a political appointee, like the Secretary of State for DCMS is a political appointee, but who is chosen from a pool of members of Parliament and changes based off of who's the Prime Minister. So that means that a political party can, and a political party's desires can essentially politicize what is content that can be moderated and i don't see anything more terrifying than politicizing what we're allowed to say online um conservative party leadership might have one opinion then well like another conservative party leadership liz truss's administration might have a different view than boris johnson's and they will definitely have a different view than labor party leadership or liberal democrats party leadership letting one person and one regulatory agency change the game Whenever the political tides shift is inconsistent and also just means that free speech becomes whatever a political party wants, which doesn't sound very free.
1: No, it's not. And just to reiterate for the American audience, UK's got a parliamentary system. So with the exception of some, you know, limited judicial reviews on certain things, whatever parliament says pretty much goes legally over there. And that's your concern because the American audience is sitting there like, what's she talking about? You have this, this and that. You don't have a written constitution in the UK. You have whatever Parliament says, with very few exceptions, goes. And as we see right now, Parliament has—you know—maybe some changeover coming. It is worrying, and that's a piece that the American audience needs to understand about the UK and this bill in particular, and how it works over there, right?
5: Yeah, if it changes, if the system changes based off of political tides, based off of what the Secretary of State changes within different lists of content that needs to be moderated, removed, or specified in terms and conditions, online services can very easily try to find a way to integrate those product changes for their global user base. Essentially saying it costs too much to splinter the internet and moderate one way in the United Kingdom and moderate one way elsewhere. Maybe we should subject non-United Kingdom internet users to similar moderation constraints. That means that the political leadership of the United Kingdom, if they choose to redefine what is legal but harmful content or choose to redefine the definitions at play in the online safety bill, are opening up a global user base of online services to reinterpreted content moderation practices. My brain immediately goes to an article where a Labor member of parliament came out saying that incels and climate deniers should be included in extremist content. That is a a change that has already been specified by a member of parliament as wanting to be added into the system after the online safety bill. If that's going to happen under labor leadership, then conservative leadership could have a different story next time round. So there will be stark changes between political appointments in a way that is frankly ill-advised for a level of stability.
1: Concerning stuff. Tough topic. Karanuthi does a great job explaining it to us um we'll have you back again it's good to talk to you again
5: yeah it was lovely to talk to you again
1: appreciate you breaking this down for us until we get you back on herd tell again uh and we're going to link to this piece make sure you read the whole thing for yourself in the meantime let folks know where they can follow you keep up with what you got going on whether you're there here or yonder because you move all over the place every time i talk to you you're on a different continent uh let folks know how they can keep up with you until we talk to you again my friend
5: yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Kirsty Nuthi, or you can follow my amazing team's work at DataInnovation.org. I cover some of this stuff, but we have amazing work on artificial intelligence, data divide, and all of these other issues facing technology and future technology.
1: Yep, we'll uh, we'll make sure to keep up with that. We're going to have you back on because these issues are just going to get more complicated and louder. They're not going anywhere, Nuthi. Thank you so much for the time. And if you're looking for your glasses, they're just right there on top of your head. (laughs) Uh, Have a great day. Appreciate the time. We'll talk again real soon.
5: Awesome. Thank you so much, Andrew.
1: Thank you, ma'am. So, well, last time we invited her back because she does great work. Very insightful. Have a great time talking to her. She is an opinion columnist uh, for the Denver Post. She's out there in beautiful Colorado. God's country up there. That's a lot higher than the mountains I grew up with, my friend. How are you?
6: I am doing great. And uh, yeah, the leaves are starting to change. It's finally getting a little bit cooler here. We had a super hot summer, so glad to see things cool down.
1: Yeah, it's it, people, you know, I grew up in the mountains. One of the nice things about the mountains is you get four really distinct seasons. Like there, there, there's yeah. not a whole lot of overlap. It's like, oh, it's snowing today. Oh, it's really hot today. And it's one of the great things. Of course, my, my Appalachian mountains are not the Rockies. They're, I just had this conversation with my daughter last night. Cause she's going to be going out to Colorado for a wedding. And I was like, no, this is very different. And then it's even different than like the Alps, which is just like a rock wall coming at you, but I uh, love it out there. Okay. Y'all got some stuff going on out there. You've been writing about it. Two different columns. And when I say different, I mean way different columns. Uh, Let's start talking about uh, (laughs) Douglas County, Colorado, apparently has a little bit of problems with exposed female breasts. But when you dig into it and you get past your well-written headline and lead, are we really still arguing over the Rocky Horror Picture Show after 47 years?
6: You know, a little bit. Right. So yeah, D- Doug Coe has been in the news a couple of times for for boobs, basically. Uh, first, there was a, a pride fest done on their fairgrounds in which a transvestite's fake boob was revealed, and that caused a bunch of brouhaha. Now there is, uh, the art center's going to do Rocky Horror Picture Show, and I guess there was a glimpse, very you know, short two-second boob debut somewhere in that movie. It's been a long time since I've seen it, so I don't know where the boob is, but it's somewhere in there. And so they decided they had to change their city ordinances to comply with a court case in another city in northern Colorado that said that uh, you cannot differentiate between male and female breasts and that if men can go topless in the park, so can women. So they changed their ordinances to make them gender neutral and I kind of attack the piece in saying this, You know, there are a lot of things, a lot of rules in society that aren't against actual harm, like, I mean, do not kill, do not steal, obviously those make sense. But there are also rules, be it cultural rules or actual ordinances and laws, talking about sort of time and place. You know, when, when should the female breast be seen? Um, and I kind of make the case that time and place rules, be it cultural or actual laws do have their place. And, you know, I I think it's important to keep in mind that the people who most want to be seen naked are usually the people you don't want to see naked. And I I actually think not having people running around topless at the park is probably a good thing.
1: Yeah, but you are well-traveled, Krista Curry, for joining us. Uh, You're well-traveled, so you understand, and you touching this on your piece, every culture is very, very different when it comes to this. Uh, I lived in Europe for a long time. There is no stigma to most in most places. Now there's things like, you know, business settings, government buildings, places like that, you get a park, you go to an amusement park, a patch of grass with some sunshine. There is no stigma to this. It's, it's allowed, it's excused. Nobody really thinks twice about it. And if you do, you're basically showing that you're a foreigner or a stupid American and why do you have a problem with this? So this is very much a cultural construct thing. How do we attack it from that angle? Because, look, there's a lot that goes into this. People want to put morality on it. People have religious convictions about the body. People have their own insecurities about the body, and then those insecurities get projected. When you go to something, though, like a public ordinance, which is kind of a, you know, semi-law to hardcore law, depending on enforcement, that's a lot of stuff to try to put down into just how somebody should or shouldn't be dressed, isn't it?
6: It is. But I you know, I think about why do we actually have these time and place rules? And you think about time and place. Like, I don't, you know, if, you, if there's a topless beach, if I'm with girlfriends, you know, I, I, I can go topless on a topless beach. I don't care. Uh, but I, that said, I don't think that having a topless woman at a kid's playground is a good idea. Now, is that because there's something inherently wrong with the female breast? No. Uh, but time and place rules are sensitive about what will be distracting and detracting for other people. So I give an example in the, in the piece of when I travel abroad, particularly developing countries, countries in, in Africa or Asia, I don't hug and kiss dogs and horses the way I do here. Uh, when I'm in, a, you know, here in the States, I can't, you know, I see a dog, I pet that dog, I hug that dog, um, I kiss dogs. I was riding this weekend up in the mountains. I, you know, kiss the heck out of that horse. The horses love to have their head smooched. It's it's something that I do here, but I don't do it when I'm abroad. Why? Because in those cultures, kissing animals is considered offensive. I don't do it because if I did do it, you know, the earth wouldn't fall apart, but I would be distracting other people. I would be detracting from their experience. And so what this really comes down to with time and place rules is are you doing something that is distracting and detracting to other people? And if it is, then, then don't do it. Uh, there's no reason to just unnecessarily offend people. Now, I don't have a problem with tweaking the overly offended, overly sensitive, trigger happy person out there that just wants to clutch their pearls at every turn. I, you know, I don't mind messing with that person. It's kind of fun. But the average person, I don't need to go out of my way to offend people. And so, yeah, I don't, I don't care if there's a, 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 a boob in a movie, in a, a theater that is mostly adults. But you know what I'd say? Keep it under covers when you're at the park.
1: Yeah, Krista K for joining us. That's why I found the Rocky Horror Picture Show element of this so amazing. So for the uninitiated, I don't want to give it all away because, you know, this can be a fun thing for the people that don't know what they're walking into. Usually around this time of the year, because, you know, Halloween, you have showings of Rocky Horror. This is not going to a normal movie. This is an event. It's interactive. It's very much audience participation, especially if you sucker somebody into going that doesn't know what's going on. And then they get really participated, whether, you know, mandatory fun kind of a thing. There's a lot that goes on in the showing of a Rocky horror, a, brief glimpse of nipple on the screen i would think would probably be in the 80s or 90s on the list of things that could possibly be offensive that goes on at these things and this is all consenting adults Let's so not you know nobody's getting assaulted or going to the hospital or anything but it, it's raunchy good clean adult fun i just mm-hmm. always amazed at and you touch on it on on in the piece whether it's somebody topless in a park whether it's the rocky horror picture show why in the world do we tolerate politicians who want to grab these small outlier things that in a vacuum are not that big a deal. And now all of a sudden that's what we want to make a rule or a law or an ordinance over. That's kind of the real problem here beyond just, you know, somebody exposing a little flesh. Right.
6: Well, I think yeah, there's definitely a sort of throw red meat to the crowd at election time, kind of a thing where you pick out something that a very small minority of people is going to be upset about. I though well, I think on this, In this particular issue so you have the the city of parker is in douglas county douglas county you've got three commissioners two of which are these pearl clutcher types that you know got upset about the pride fest and the transvestite rubber boob and so they're upset about it then you get parker with a more probably a a less conservative city council who's like oh uh, you know, we've got this, this picture coming, we need to tweak these laws. Well, did they really need to tweak the laws? Could they have just done the show? Probably just done the show. Um, I think they were doing this to sort of show it to the commissioners. And that's just my opinion. It's this kind of little, I call it, let's call it a tit for tat, virtue signaling. Um, I I just feel like we should have better things to do. Um, and I I think the whole female nudity Thing is not really resolved. It's there's a couple of different court uh, court uh, decisions at the appellate level. So maybe it goes to the Supreme Court and they have to rule on it. In the meanwhile, I just I kind of wish people would be more I don't know either sensitive about the feelings of others and kind of on the other side less trigger happy themselves. Uh, if you don't like the Rocky Horror Picture Show, don't go. Um, if you don't want you don't like Pride Fest, don't go uh you know but on the other hand those people should have a reasonable expectation that if they're at a playground everyone's going to have their shirt on
1: um Chris kay for joining us for people that aren't familiar with colorado though let's zoom out because again you you get it like we just said you get into these little niche things give us the big picture of colorado though because the culture war stuff colorado's always been kind of a fault line for the last 20 30 years cuz You're the headquarters for a lot of different, you know, very conservative religious organizations. And you also have an openly gay governor like this is not new stuff in Colorado. Give us the big picture view of kind of the culture war side of politics and culture in Colorado, because that's really the overall environment that this stuff is happening in. And then people want to pick their little things for the war. Give people that perspective, the water perspective of what's going on. Because this is a changing state. It's very much kind of a purplish, maybe leaning more towards blue lately state politically. Mm-hmm. There's a lot going on in Colorado with this stuff.
6: So Colorado is an interesting state. So more than a third is mountainous. More than a third is plains, completely flat. And then we have this zone down on the front range, which is where I live. So that's Denver, Fort Collins, Colorado Springs, Pueblo. Most of the population is in this zone that's right between the plains and the mountains. I can get into the mountains in a half hour drive, but right now I'm looking at a, you know, flat lawn if I look out my window. So the state when I grew up was kind of libertarian. You know, there was some liberalism in Boulder. Boulder's kind of famous for being liberal. You had conservatives down in Colorado Springs, but it was a lot more moderate, just, you know, kind of a get along place. Now those two sides tend to kind of force the extremes on each side. It's almost like being present in the same place. They have to be even more liberal and more conservative. That said, the state really is a spectrum still. You've got conservatives, you've got liberals, you've got very extreme people, we have got an actual, I think she's a, she calls herself either a socialist or a communist, I can't remember, on the Denver City Council. So you have some very left-leaning politicians you have some some diehard Trumpy people on the right as well. And then a lot of sort of normal people in the middle going, please, let's just let's just chill out a little bit. Um, but it is it's an interesting state. And I think if I could opposites sort are of together in some ways, bring out the worst on both sides.
1: Krista Kay for joining us, columnist for the Denver Post. All right, like any good columnist, you take a wide swath on what you talk about. So let's uh, go from uh, Baird breast and <laughs> Tim Curry in a sequin corset to pig farming. Yeah, you're writing about. You wrote about the gestational crates. Let's do a little perspective here. I want you to explain what these things are. I actually know what these are. Um, I've been to like the Smithfield plant. I know what these things look like. Somebody that hadn't seen them though, because. Smithfield, which is the largest pork producer in the world, they said in 2007, they were going to get rid of these things. They said in 2018, they were going to get rid of these things. We're still in 2020. They still haven't gotten rid of these things. I'm not just picking on them. A lot of the other companies are doing it as well, but they're just the biggest. Why is it that we're, you know, 15 years into them saying they haven't done this? They still haven't got rid of them. Explain what they, what they are, why business-wise they want to use them and why it's being so hard for this industry to get away from these things
6: cause they're cheaper basically. Um, and you think about like, uh, animal husbandry up until the eighties, they really didn't use these things very much. Uh, uh, it became kind of these big factory farms where you start to have inhumane confinement because it's cheaper. And I should say this, I, I am a meat eater. I will eat pretty much in any kind of, you know, farmed meat. I love game. Um, you know, I always tell people, I will try, I have, Chicken, so I'll trade fresh eggs and homemade jam if you bring me ducks and geese. That's my favorite, uh, but I'll eat any, basically any kind of meat. And so I'm not against meat eating. What I am against is inhumane treatment of animals, be it putting, you know, chickens in tiny crates, uh, confining these sows in tiny crates for the, for basically their entire life. Uh, it's inhumane. Um, I know it's more expensive to raise meat particularly chickens and pork uh, in giving animals some space to live. I know it's more expensive. And, and I think we ought to pay, pay the price. Uh, these, these gestation crates are that cruel. So when the sow is pregnant and she's usually just going to be pregnant much of her life. So she's in this tiny crate where she cannot move around. She can't inter, you know interact with other pigs. If she lays down a certain way, there's a chance that the crate, the pig in the crate next to her could, like lay on her leg and break it. Um, She's on metal slats, uh, you know, so that the poop and whatnot goes through the slats, but some of it still ends up on the slats. So she's basically her own stuff all day. She can eat and drink and that's about it. She can't really move that much. They become listless. Uh, These are intelligent animals. They're, They're about as smart as dogs, maybe smarter. And then she goes from that crate to a farrowing crate, has her babies, they get weaned off. She gets rebred and she's back in the gestation crate. In order to get away from these crates, you have to go to facilities where you have a bunch of sows in a in a space and you have to work with those sows to make sure that some sows don't bully away all of the food from the other sows. So it's a little more work. It, it takes more money to put together um, a space where you've got multiple, multiple pigs, but, you know, animals are not widgets. You can't just, you know, say, oh, our our pig factory, this widget is is too old. We'll swap her out for a new widget. These are animals and they need to be treated with a certain amount of humanity. And I know the pork producers will say, well, hey, you feel that way. You should just go to Whole Foods and buy humanely raised pork, which I, you know, I'm at that point where that's if I buy pork, that's going to be what I buy. I, I think we have to go beyond that and just say these these practices are cruel. It doesn't matter that I don't beat my dog. I don't want my neighbor beating his dog. Um, at some point, we have to have some standards.
0: Yeah.
1: Krista Decay for joining us. Like, look, I've got, I'm blessed. I know some friends. I've got my pork guy that when I really want good pork, he runs a small family farm, old retired, say, you know, used to be a sailor, good guy. He's I've wrote about him before. Tim, how you doing, Tim? I need bacon, buddy. You know, he free ranges his hogs. His line is my pigs only have one bad day their whole life. And he prides himself on that. They wild feed other than they get, you know, mash from the distilleries when they go to fatten them up a little bit. Right now they get the pumpkins, which is a great viral video because he gets everybody's wasted pumpkins and they just lose their minds. That's like crack to the pigs. He can tell me the name and disposition of the pig I'm eating, and I can tell the qual, you know, I'm a big foodie. Everybody knows about Mm -hmm. Twitter. So I can tell the difference. Huge difference in the quality, but he also only provides, you know, four or five, six times a year. I can maybe get that. That's not scalable to feeding people. I'm not going to stop eating pork. I understand we need industrialized food production and animal husbandry because otherwise you would have a starving planet. So I don't want to do the elitist thing with that. And I'm not going to stop eating meat. However, there's some basic stuff like, you know, like having pens instead of Yeah, it's a little more expensive. Smithfield, a couple of years ago, they had this whole thing where their pigs were literally going crazy and they had this animal rights activist come in. They go, all you need to do is once every couple hours, somebody just walk through the pens. They didn't even have to physically do anything. They just had to walk through the pen and it settled the animals down. Some of this stuff, you know, we're not trying to reinvent the animal husbandry. wheel. some of this stuff is pretty simple, like, you know, let them have some outside time. Let them have some move around time. I find this all to be reasonable stuff. I understand it's a profit margin business, but I think we know too much. We have too much technology. We can see through our phones the food where we're getting it. I think we as a society has a right to demand some better standards, especially since it's all on video and we're right in front of us. I don't have a problem with any of this. I think we should have a little better gild on where our food comes from and how it's produced, and we should be loud about it.
6: Yeah, I agree. And so the reason I wrote this piece is that The Supreme court is going to rule on this during their next session. And so we've got California has decided that, and this is by referendum, that they not only don't allow gestation crates, they don't want any meat brought into the state that's made with gestation. uh, That's made through this this tech call it technology, this kind of animal husbandry. They don't want any of that. uh, They don't want any of that brought into the state. Pork producers are saying, well, we, you know we can't just produce this kind of pork for you and not have to alter all of our other practices which is going to make pork a lot more expensive and i read a bunch of uh, amicus briefs they actually could do that just for california if they wanted to there is the technology available but i would like to see the industry just upgrade their facilities treat these these animals as animals not as widgets in a machine I mean, we talked earlier, my, my jeeps at the, at the mechanic right now, it's turning 200,000 miles. It's kind of a, it's, a, it's a birthday tune-up. And any part that's sort of put in or taken out, those are just parts, they're inanimate objects. It doesn't matter. These sows are not inanimate objects. They're living beings that need to be given some quality of life while they're alive. And, and so I, I hope that the court rules on behalf of California, as much as that kills me to say, Colorado and California have a little bit of a rivalry, but you know we, we do need better standards, and it it's not that we've always done it this way. This way of doing things really just goes back to the to the '80s. Uh, before that, you saw a lot more animals in larger pens, animals that are free ranged. Um, I, I think I think we can do better.
1: For joining us, there's a couple things about this I want to point out on the political side of it, though, because people are like, oh, California's making it because California's got some other rules like this where they're trying to enforce it on everybody mm. that I don't agree with. There's a couple points on this. This was a referendum. This isn't just some, you know, they voted on this. The people, you know, I'm I'm still a re- Democratic Republic guy, even if I don't agree with it. People voted on it, so it's got to be respected. That's one. One. Number two, I'm going to go back to what I already talked about. Smithfield, which is the biggest pork producer. Um, Now, majority owned by overseas interests, mostly China. They've been saying since 2007, they were going to stop doing this anyway. And then they've been dragging their feet because they wanted the PR without actually having to do it. So that with the court and that's going to be part of this court case, too, because they take those sort of things. in. So whatever the court ruling here is, we can't just say, oh, this is California enforcing their thing. This is one of those things where the industry itself is saying, no, we shouldn't do this. But they're still doing it anyway. I think that's an important difference when we talk about because, you know, look, I'm 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 always I start skeptical with the regulations like, OK, prove to me why we need this. Right. Yeah. This one, this one feels a little different because it was it was not only a referendum. It's something that the industry itself is saying they should have been doing for the last 15, 20 years anyway. This looks like a clear place of regulation to step in and go, look, you're saying you should do this. You haven't done it. The people want it. The industry wants mm-hmm. it. It's got a moral component. Let's do it. That feels like a good regulation to me. Now, of course, that can still get abused. But on the face of it, I think this is a step forward.
6: I think so, too. And you think it, it law follows cultural trends, generally speaking, and the culture is moving away from these big factory farms where animals are treated like widgets and not living beings. And, you know, everybody, you know, a lot of these entities, these these big uh, industries have put out press releases, as you said, we're getting away from these. A number of businesses like Starbucks and you know ConAgra have also put out press releases saying, we are not going to buy pork uh, from producers who use these gestation crates. So I think this just sort of backs up where we're already going and just the recognition that there are better ways to handle animals. Um, I'm lucky, I think we're lucky with, with beef. Most beef cattle spend, spend their life, at least a good large part of their life out on range. Um, they're only in pens when they're kind of fattening up on corn before slaughter. So those animals are treated relatively well. But when you look at chickens, particularly meat chickens, also egg layers, and and pigs, there's just ways to go there in terms of allowing some quality of life for the animals that, that we eat.
1: Yeah, and Krista Kay for joining us. And the other part of this, too, is... One reason I'm slow on regulation is because I, I am sensitive to a bur- putting undue burden on a business or an, an industry. The burden here, though, is the reason they do the gestational crates is they don't want to pay the extra manpower to take care of the animals. So this actually would probably create more jobs and more opportunities in that respect because they're going to have to hire people to handle these animals because they're going to be moved. That's why they ch- train. That's why they do this. They can control them with less people and less things. So there's that element to it. Krista K for always good enjoying it. I love, I, I was teasing you, but I love that you do various stuff like this for us to point out and debate and hash out. Uh, you're at the post, let folks know where they can keep up and follow you until we get you back, which we will do. Definitely want to hear more about this Jeep. You're going to have to write that one up for us. Let us know where you're at, what you got going on until we see you again on her
6: So you can follow me at, at Krista K for on Twitter. Um, I'm, I'm there sometimes. And then I've got my Denver post, Column, you can just you know Google Denver Post, and then I've got a Substack. I basically take my post piece and about three or four days later put it up on the Substack. So if you don't, if you want to get past the paywall, that's the way to do it. My my Substack is Anomalous Take, which is kind of an anomalous title for a Substack, but uh, you can find my stuff there. And, and anyway, thanks for having me on.
1: Yeah, we really enjoy it. All right, last thing, real quick, favorite Rocky Horror Picture Show song and number.
6: I can't, you know, it's been, it's been years. Okay. Sing, sing a couple of bars.
1: <laughs> that That is not going to happen. Um, no, <laughs> uh, I'm not, I'm not saying uh, yeah, it's my exactly. show and I do what I want, but I'm not doing that.
6: <laughs> it's funny. Like wait, the minute I thought, I was like, hey, which was my favorite sex? Cause was, you know, when you're young and you go to that show a lot, you, you sing all the songs. And then for some reason, when I was young, I was also into that musical hair. And I think I have all of those songs me- memorized, but you know, as you get older, the files start to mix. So the minute you ask me, Lord, one of my favorite songs from Hair popped in my mind.
1: I think I still got to go with "Bless My Soul" because the whole thing of Meatloaf showing up doing this show-stealing number and then they kill him—it's just too pert. Like it's just it did. It, it's so ridiculous. Uh, God bless and, him. We lost him last year. I love- we?
6: we- yeah. I know. I'm so sad that we lost him. I love meatloaf.
1: Yeah. My morning alarm is uh, the, uh, the pipe organ opening to a uh, home by now, no matter what, that's been the alarm on my phone for probably 10 years now. Love it. All right. Krista Kafer, we'll let you off the hook on that one. Go bone up on your uh, Rocky Horror Picture music and we'll talk soon. My friend
6: sounds good. Have a great day.
1: Thank you so much. Andrew Dawson, thank you so much for joining us. The most precious thing, your time. We don't ever want to waste it. And we always do what we do here. We turn down the noise of the news cycle, get to the information we need to discern the times that we live in. And to do that, we're going to do something a little bit different on this program. One year ago, it's always good to be retrospective about things. One year ago, by far the biggest news story in America was Gabby Petito. And when it happened, We had some blowback in the media of why the media was covering the story the way it was covering. And the other part that came out of it was, what about all the other missing persons? Why aren't they getting covered? Why did Gabby get covered and they didn't? Now, there's a lot of reasons for that. One is she had an online community that really advocated for her. And that's an important part of the story. She had friends in her online community, this Van Life community, who really kept her name in the news, who got the news coverage. And got this mystery, at least as far as we know to this point, somewhat solved. And at least found her and let her family have a little bit of peace, although they never got justice. That's part of the story. The other part of the story is how it got covered, why it got covered, why it was so big, and why that story got big and others did not. So we turn to one of our really good friends who's been on this program a couple of times, Molly McCluskey. And she compares and contrasts to a story that she covered of missing women out on the reservations. And she talked about spending an immense amount of time and effort covering this story. And then we get to the part that's pertinent to the Gabby Petito story. She couldn't sell it to hardly anybody. She couldn't get anybody interested in it. And then when Gabby Petito happened, all of a sudden people are interested. And some of the same places that turned her down on that story are all of a sudden very interested in it. It's an interesting look in how media works especially during a frenzy, especially during a viral story, especially during a story that crosses a lot of cultural streams. So Molly McCluskey from last year, last October during the height of the Gabby Petito story on her tell right now. So let's start with some nomenclature. I'm guilty of it too. I've done it too. We talk media, And journalism, like, they're interchangeable terms, but they're really not because we're usually referring to, like, broadcast media or TV media or a major media outlet like, you know, Washington Post or something like that. That doesn't necessarily dovetail with journalism, and it doesn't really show the diversity in journalism and media we have right now, does it?
7: No, it really doesn't. And, you know, I like to think of the terms media and journalism the way one might associate government and military, right? There is no real such thing as military as a blanket term. We intrinsically know that there's a difference between a naval commander, which is what my father was, um, and a gunny sergeant and, you know, a Marine and the different types of branches and jobs and ranks. And they're all just, you know, a PIO is going to do a different job than somebody working a battleship. I mean, they're just all different jobs and different roles. And so, and obviously when you look at government as well, there's state government and federal government and local government and everybody just does a different job. And so I am a... Traditionally trained print journalist. I'm not somebody that's going to be on TV very often I do the occasional radio piece, but I am a writer by trade and I am a features and investigative journalist So I am not somebody necessarily that responds to breaking news very quickly I'm not somebody that's banging out a blog post as you know A big story is developing and you're trying to get it out in 10 minutes before the competitor does I'm somebody that will spend days, weeks, months, and in some cases, like this case, years, on one particular story, really diving into it, trying to get to the nuance. So as I tell my friends, I'm not someone who goes in to cover the war. I'm someone who will go in six months later to cover the rebuilding and the aftermath and the community and how they're responding and recovering from the war. That's the type of investigative and features reporting that I do.
1: And the part of that that's really different that people don't understand is— that's a completely different business model than broadcast journalism. The reason they're chasing trends and clicks and breaking news is because that's their business model. You get your funding and you find your outlets in a completely different way, and that does affect how your stories come out and what stories do and do not get covered, doesn't it?
7: Absolutely, and you know, it's, it's interesting when you watch broadcast news, if you note how often they refer to a piece of print journalism. Right. Um, if you're watching MSNBC right. or Fox News and they're talking about, oh, this story that broke out of this town, they're often referring to original field print reporting, people that are knocking on doors and going and talking to people in their community which is the type of journalism that I came up with. I was a small town reporter in Skagway, Alaska. Uh, it was, a, you know, I like to joke that it's a town of, you know, 800 people and a couple of goats. There's no goats, but you get the sense. Um, and <laughs> it was the kind of reporting where, you know, if somebody didn't like your story, they would come knock on your door and have, you know, have you for tea at their table and tell you why they didn't like your story. And there's a certain type of accountability with that that I feel is not always um, present in all branches of journalism today.
1: And an important waypoint before we get into the national story and how national stories are covered though, one of the major cultural shifts that I don't know a lot of people really realize is kind of, and it's been a little exaggerated, but the death of local media over the last 20, 25 years, you know, there there just isn't as much local print media, local, even television media, everything's kind of gone to a national trend in a lot of ways. And that has changed not only journalism and not only media, but it's kind of changed society in a lot of ways.
7: Absolutely. I mean, when you have people reporting on your community from your community, right? It's a different perspective than what we call helicopter journalists, which I've been guilty of myself. Um, I've tried not to do it as a practice, but that's basically when you fly into somewhere, drop in, cover it, and leave without a lot of context. Um, When I was a foreign correspondent, I would live in the town that I was covering. I would rent an apartment and I would spend three to six months there and base myself in different places because to me, the idea of really being in a place you you can't trade that for anything you to understand the rhythms and the cultures and the way people you know hang out at the market or talk a certain way and and to really understand it, it adds so much nuance i think you know you and i have talked about this before it's one of the things i really try to include with my reporting is to really give people a sense of the place that this is happening stories don't happen in a vacuum they happen with people and locations and the history of, uh, you know, the context of of where it happens and why it happens.
1: So when something like the Gabby Patino story hits, where it's, um, and it was the family that kind of drove it, and then it caught on, and then it went viral, and then the national outlets grab it, When you're talking about helicopter journalism, that seems to almost be the model now instead of picking up, you know, the local guy or, you know, the network news goes to the local affiliate to get on the ground reporting. It seems like this is almost kind of the model of a lot of stories now, not just missing person stories, but just stories in general. It kind of went viral. The national outlets grabbed it, and then everybody swoops in. When you're talking helicopter journalism, this is kind of a pretty good example of that, isn't it?
7: Well, I will say a lot of the local outlets um, from Long Island, where Gabby is from originally, and from um, Florida, where they are, you know, on the ground trying to find Brian, uh, her fiancé, the local journalists are still on the scene. But yes, there are a lot of national reporters going in as well. And, you know, that's such an interesting story because here you have a very young pretty blonde woman who goes missing. There's a lot of really weird aspects of the case. Um, there's obviously the domestic violence and the domestic disturbance issue. There's police accountability. I mean, we know she had that stop in Moab, uh, which is a town I used to live in, by the way. I was an um, intern park ranger at Arches. And so I know that community pretty well. Um, there's the van life you know, movement, which is really part of the community that really rallied to help her Um, her remains be found. But also, you know, she's a young woman who lived her life online. And so other people that also lived their lives online were personally invested in this and in a position to amplify. I mean, you and I have talked extensively about our love-hate relationships with social media and what the balance is and when we need to take a break. But we're of a certain age that is not a 22-year-old, you know, trying to Um, who's finding her way in the world and traveling cross-country with a partner that she's had a troubled history with, by all accounts. So, you know, it it was primed, I think, to take off. It had all these different elements in it. And as someone who, you know, in my younger years, A, was in some kind of questionable relationships, but also spent a lot of time driving cross-country and kind of living the backpack, tenting kind of lifestyle, it, it captivated me as well. But yes, she, as tragic as this is, is one person who got a lot of attention. She is a certain person of a certain privilege who is in certain communities, do get a lot of attention. And there were and are a lot of people in Wyoming and in Florida and New York and throughout the US that don't get this kind of attention and vanish without any kind of attention. And it's not because their families aren't looking for them, and it's not because their community doesn't love them, and it's not because they're not wonderful human beings that deserve to be found. It's because of the way these things are set up um, that they're getting they're getting ignored, which is really tragic.
1: And we're we both have done some editing, and we both. I'm not a journalist, but I, because I'm a writer, I do some journalist adjacent type stuff. We understand how this works, and and even the general population picked up on it when you looked at social media of the, when the Gabby Petito story went national, and then there was a little bit of a backlash of oh, there's all these other missing people. It wasn't hours later, and the next morning, every single outlet had what I we kind of derisively called cut and paste. Pieces. Every single one of them had, oh, well, there's all these other missing people. This is why I really wanted to talk to you because you've been on that end of it where you've had those stories and you were trying to get them out. How, before we delve into your story of getting those out, though, how much of that is fair criticism? How much of it is just the media environment we're in? Is, is it really a pick and choose thing? Because Part of it, too, and I think it's fair to bring it up, is the audience because they are, it is. you know, it's what we're consuming as consumers, too, that they're reacting to, not just the media. Uh, which part of this, how do you parse that out? Who, who Where's the blame lie there? How do you parse that out?
7: Wow, that's a really big question. <laughs> no, Sorry. It's okay. We don't ask easy questions. <laughs> um, I was looking for an easy one. You're a pro. Yeah, You'll be okay. Um, I I don't feel that I can speak to the entire You know, I'm not, you know, I am a white woman of a certain age with a certain amount of privilege. I am not a member of these communities that are kind of struggling to get this attention. So I I don't feel that I can speak on behalf of them. I can say that I was surprised. First of all, to your question of how much of the criticism is fair, all of it, it is all fair. It is all justified. It should that criticism should be levied. Every day at every news outlet, all the time, it is a hundred percent fair. Um, I believe it was Gwen Eiffel who said though who coined the phrase the missing white woman syndrome and that's absolutely correct. Um, there is a lot of attention to pretty young damsel in distress. We have this uh, collective racism and misogyny around this idea that one type of woman is, you know requires protection and if something happens to her it's tragic but those conversations aren't necessarily existing around preventative um you know preventing domestic violence we saw how it was not taken seriously when somebody called in that they had seen brian hitting gabby on the streets of moab and it still wasn't taken seriously by the police that responded i mean there's this fetishization around a dead woman.
1: That's how it happens. I mean, that's that's the reality. That and and as a writer, I know and you know this. This has a delineated good guy, bad guy in it. With you have the abusive, allegedly, but you know, let's call it what we're seeing. You have the you have an abusive boyfriend and the damsel in distress. That's just a classic story yeah. that's going to take off every time you have it. Part of the story that we want to get into with you the lines aren't that clean, and there's not that good, clean, good guy, bad guy. There's just a big wad of mess and missing people, and a lot of these missing person cases, they're more that. You don't get those clean cut lines of good guy, bad guy, missing, gone, do you? Oh,
7: goodness. Well, I can really only speak to my experience of doing an investigation into the missing and murdered indigenous people of the Crow tribe of Montana a couple years ago, so I can't speak at large um, of how and why people go missing i that's that's a bigger story that you know i'm not qualified to tackle and there is no one answer for that right people go missing all the time for all sorts of reasons and it's usually tragic and there's no easy answer i will say that when i was doing the investigation into this crow tribe uh, story i was really focusing on the historical failures of the u.s government the policing um the bia in treating these these missing and murdered people right so i didn't necessarily get a little bit too much into how and why right because those things are complicated and but and they're and they're so different right so if we looked at each story then yes it would be a different story each time but if you look at how police fail to take these things seriously that is a similar story That is the same story across the board, right? Um, Especially in, you know, the fact of the Crow tribe, we had family members, like in many cases of missing indigenous people, but in missing people altogether, the family members were the ones that were going out and getting CCTV footage and, you know, piling it together and putting cases together and bringing cases to lawyers and police and saying, no, we like know what happened to our our loved one we have this footage we have this information we've interviewed witnesses and even in those cases police were not taking them seriously and not even filing report
1: and when you're dealing with something like the crow nation Mm -hmm. out in montana or any of the other uh reservations or bureau of indian affairs areas uh it's a different beast anyway because it is it's directly under government control, but they're also self-sustained control underneath that umbrella. Kind of explain that dynamic, sure. because even though it's there's a universal thing with the police there, even how the policing and the judicial system inside the tribes is a little bit different. So just explain the the ecosystem that that's working in, because I don't think people really realize that this is similar and parallel, but it's not exactly the same.
7: Sure. So there's no real easy answer to this. Each tribe has their own agreement with the federal government the crow tribe has is you know a fully sovereign entity much like they would be an individual country within our territory right so the crow tribe in 1825 signed a friendship treaty with the u.s and it's one of the few friendship treaties that exist like this and it's pretty much considered like a nato type uh, agreement of mutual defense but each Tribe has their own relationship in terms of policing. Some have their own police. Some have the oversight of the BIA, which is the Bureau of Indian Affairs. But what's really important to, to note, especially in terms of when people go missing, this is where it gets really complicated, right? Because the FBI has jurisdiction if someone is murdered on on a, res, on a tribal land. But if somebody goes missing. You file a local missing persons report, either with the tribe or your local police or the BIA, depending on how your specific policing structure is set up. And then the BIA or, or whoever, whichever policing entity you're reporting to um, says, OK, well, it's a missing person. We're going to investigate uh, if they went missing on... If they were last seen on tribal land, you know, that's a BIA thing, but if they were last seen in a city or the local city, um, you know, and Crow is right by Billings, uh, then it's it's a Billings police issue, but they can say, well, it's a member of a sovereign nation, and so that's not really our jurisdiction. There's a lot of can kicking is what happens. So one of the things to note, though, is that the Major Crimes Act, which was passed in 1885, it gave jurisdiction to the federal courts, like exclusive of the states, like the states have no say, over Native Americans who commit certain offenses, it doesn't matter if the victim is a Native American or not. And those offenses are, you know, murder, manslaughter, rape, assault with tent to kill, burglary, and a couple of others. and so. Before that, any crimes committed by a Native American against other Native Americans were tried in tribal court. And a lot of um, Indigenous leaders today, especially the ones I spoke to in the Crow tribe, say that that act, that Major Crimes Act of 1885, is really what just started everything kind of sliding downhill. Because in addition to who goes missing and where, There's that issue of, well, who's the perpetrator? Where do they live? What is their jurisdiction? Are they Native or non-Native? And how does that all play out? And so in too many cases, people are just not investigating. If they do find the perpetrator and bring them to court, the courts are either tossing the cases out or giving really lenient sentences, if at all. I mean, it's really just horrific that there's not only the tragedy of losing this person that you love, but also that there's, no, there's often no justice for it.
1: The term you use in your piece um, was disempowering empowerment. Yes. Um, it almost sounds buzzwordy, but as soon as you think about it, you're just like, Oh, that's just a, it's almost a gutting term, but what did you mean by that? And, and how does that apply to these folks? Because when you talk about it sliding downhill, yeah. Uh, again, like you said before, things don't happen in a vacuum. I always say things never happen in a vacuum, they happen in a sequence. Um, that disempowered empowerment came directly from the government and how they set all this up.
7: Yeah. So, exactly. So, one of the things that law enforcement, and again, I'm using that as a very blanket term to apply to all non-tribal policing, okay? Um, but one of the blanket terms they say is, oh, well, they're an adult. They just they just left. They just didn't like the... Res-. And this is where the really dark kind of classism, racism, elitism comes in of, well, living on the reservation must be so awful that they just walked off. They just left. And they didn't tell anybody. And in The Crow tribe in particular they're very close-knit i was really moved one of the things that they were sharing with me was that they have this process in the crow tribe where you're adopted right so you know as someone who lost both her parents um in life if i was a member of the crow tribe i would have new parents i didn't matter if i was 10 years old or 50 years old i would now have elders in the tribe that would take me and make me part of their family and that would go for aunties and uncles and nieces and nephews and cousins and so you're never left on your own you're never isolated and so one of the things one of the leaders was telling me it was like look if you like have a fight with your mom it you don't run away like you don't you know take whatever 5 dollars you have in your pocket and try to like hitch to seattle like that's just ridiculous you go up the street on the reservation to like your grandma's house you don't just vanish and so for law enforcement to just keep saying like, oh, well, they're an adult, they just left, was so inherently disrespecting the culture and showing a fundamental lack of understanding of this people that they were supposed to be policing and helping and servicing. It was such a slap in the face to say, hey, we've lost somebody. And, and this is so widespread on the, on the Crow Reservation and their neighboring Cheyenne Reservation that every person in the tribe has someone that has gone missing. That to me was what just really, it is not one or two people, right? It is every single person is impacted by this. There is no person that is left untouched by this void, this void of waking up and having someone that you love just be gone. Without a trace, without a question, without any support, without anybody you know outside of your community trying to help them find, without any media attention, without any TikToks, without any Twitter streams, without any of that, without CNN flying in, you know, and doing nothing against CNN, but like and doing vans and and whatever, um, they're just gone. And that I, as someone who has lost many people in my life, the idea that someone. Would vanish or be gone from your life, and you don't have that information, right? You don't know if they're hurt, lost, um, being kept, being harmed, if they're they're dead. I mean, one of the things that somebody said to me was, every time a body is found, everybody holds their breath, because you know the Crow tribe is this vast territory, and folks that are east of the Mississippi or live in cities really cannot fathom how expansive these territories are i mean they're just absolutely absolutely massive um crow is 2.2 million acres and has a population of fewer than 8000 people living on the reservation it is on this huge empty stretch of interstate 90 that goes through i mean i've driven it in the morning and in the night and the day and there is nothing there as far as the eye can see you can't and you're on a major like thoroughfare in the united states and you there are no buildings there are no gas stations there are no street signs there's no traffic lights there's just nothing it's as far as you can see it's nothing and the fact that people are going regularly going missing and on it just this regular basis i mean it's Continual and there's no answers or there's in some cases there were alleged cover-ups and um, in some cases there've been alleged corruption of the local police in some cases of uh, the non-tribal police um, in some cases there have been you know accusations that BIA would rather sit on their you know sit on their chairs in their Billings office than go out in the middle of the night in Montana in the winter to try to take a statement on a missing person. I mean. There's complicated issues around just the geography and the landscape of, the, of this of this territory, but it's all of the other interwoven challenges that have been designed to set up to really disenfranchise and disempower these tribes is really just appalling, going back hundreds of years since the US. is founded.
1: You talked about how the type of investigating journalism you do, you get rather immersed in your subject and you go there and you live there. Talk about your responsibility, because when when you build a relationship with a subject like you do for these pieces, um, you these people have to let you in and they start to trust you, especially people with these kind of traumas. Um, What is your responsibility as a journalist? Because we, we hear a lot about journalistic integrity and we, we beat it around with things like politics and culture. But you're in these people's homes and then when you go to print your story or whatever, you know, you, you carry responsibility because you've kind of given them their word that you're going to portray them a certain way. Talk, talk about that part of the process because a lot of people may not be familiar with how a journalist deals with something like that.
7: Yeah. Um, so I will say that this story came to me. I didn't seek it out. Most of my big investigations have found me, and I tend to take that as a you know sign of some sort that I'm the person that needs to you know do this story. And so I had been living overseas, and I had been covering Europe's economic crisis, and when that became the migration crisis, I was covering that. And then when I moved back to the states, I started covering youth incarceration, and I did a whole series on. Oh, my goodness, that's that series still kills me, but um, solitary confinement for children in youth detention centers and the psychological impact of that and lack of education and what it's like to being educated in youth, incarcerate and youth detention centers. And and so I was doing this whole series for about kids in the US being incarcerated and, and the ridiculous reasons why and the law enforcement kind of apparatus that's around caging children in this country and i was on the board of the press club at the time the national press club in dc and someone that i knew through the club came to me and sat me down and he said listen i've got a friend coming to town he's got a leader you know he's a leader of the crow tribe in montana his sister has gone missing and he can't get any like any help at all can you just talk to him and i said listen i don't i don't cover indigenous affairs i don't really like i'll talk to him of course i'll meet with him sure um as a courtesy but I don't know what I can do here. Like I'm a freelancer, I, I don't know journalists, I don't know editors in this beat. And as a freelancer, when you when I take on a story or when I agree to a story because a source comes to me, I don't necessarily get editors that call me and commission me pieces. It happens sometimes, but that's not the way this the world my world works. What typically happens is I'll say, I've, a source comes to me and says, I've got a story. And I'll say, okay, hold that story. Tell me a little bit about it. I'm gonna go reach out to every editor I know at every single publication And hopefully, one of them will say yes. We'll run that story, write it. We'll pay you, and we'll run it. And that can that process takes, I mean, months if not years, right? So, I didn't. I was really invested in the kids' um, reporting, and I didn't really want to dive into anything else. And I don't have, you know, sources or editors that would cover this. And so, and so, I thought, okay, I'll just, you know, I'll meet with him, and at some point, maybe it'll turn into a story down the line, or I can fold it into another story. And so, I'm, and this was CJ, who I talk about at length in the, in the article that you mentioned. And so I, you know, we sat in a little conference room at the press club and had like a 15 minute thing. And he was like, oh yeah, okay, my sister's gone missing. I'm like, that's really sorry. You know, I'm really sorry about that. And it's really terrible. And he's like, and my brother had also had a police encounter that resulted in his death. And I was like, oh my god, that's like, how much bad fortune can one family have? This is really terrible. And he's like, no, you don't understand. And then he started to tell me about this epidemic. And I was completely ignorant of it. I had no concept. I had no idea. You know, aside from what you learn in school about Native affairs, which, let's be honest, is very (laughs) one-sided. It is very limited. And told under this idea of like, America conquered the tribes, which is Terrible. I really had very little interaction. And so he said, Okay, well, you should come out to Montana. And I didn't realize with that invitation, I realized it later, but that it is very unusual for a non tribal person to be invited to the tribe in that way. And so I said, okay, well, you know, I'm working on this other story. Um, I'm wrapping up, I think I had a piece in the Washington Post about a police captain in Philadelphia that was trying to stop getting kids arrested. Because in Philadelphia, they were arresting children as young as 10 and like traumatizing them for life. So I was doing that story and I was like, I'll get back to you. And I started reaching out to news outlets and, you know, a bunch of places were like, oh yeah. And I was like, listen, like, People are disappearing. Like, how is this happening in this country? In this age of social media, in the age of police reform, in this age of mass surveillance. I mean, I can't walk down my street without knowing that I have 12 different, you know, different entities, surveillance cameras following me, right? Like, how is this happening? And so I started digging into the how is this happening piece of it and pitched a couple editors and I had one magazine friendly say, yes, we'll do it. Go to the story. Um, and I should point out that i paid for it out of pocket um it went out to montana for two weeks interviewed everybody from the attorney general to local police to tribal members i had a strange interaction with local police there too so i know that they were aware that i was in town um i was followed places i spent two weeks out there came, came back and was like okay so now i have the field piece i have sat there with people while they told me their stories of missing people and cried. I mean, the, the question of responsibility and integrity, right? When someone, when someone who is not part of your community trusts you, who doesn't know you, right. And CJ opened lots of doors when you're not part of a closed community and you're invited in and doors open everywhere and they open everywhere. And they are vulnerable and they are raw and they are crying in front of you and tearing up as they're telling you about the last time they saw their loved one or the last phone call they had. Or in one case, how they were, you know, had just gone to get Christmas presents and then they never came home for Christmas. I mean, you carry that. And if you don't carry that with you, I don't think you deserve to be in this line of work. I carry that with me. And I went back and I wrote the story and the news outlet was like, oh, we didn't think this is what the story was gonna be. We thought you were gonna tell us that white supremacists were murdering native women. And that's why they all went missing. And I'm like, well, like, that's, that's not the story that I wrote. The story is there's all these fundamental gaps in policing and we are failing this tribe as a country and the laws have been built to fail this tribe as a country. And that's the story. And it was originally like a ten thousand word piece that became a three thousand word piece. And, and they're like, well, we don't want it. I was like, okay, so now I have to I have to go find a place for this story now. I, Andrew, every connection I had ever cultivated in my life got an email from me, got a phone call. I was trying to give this story away. I could not, I was. I, I would not have taken, I was thousands of dollars out of pocket at this point. I would not have taken any money. I just wanted to get it out into the world. I thought it was so important. I thought, how can it be that all of these people are vanishing and nobody cares? And here I am, I have this story for you. I it's I have photographs. It's been fact-checked. It's web-ready. It's a packaged piece, ready to go. I'm giving it to you for free. I mean, I reached out to Newsweek. I reached out to CNN. I reached out to the New York Times. I reached out to the LA Times. I reached out to the Seattle Times. I reached out to every favor I could have called in, every person that knew somebody. Um, and I, you know, that's As a freelancer, I have a pretty decent contact roster. I was trying to give this away. I honestly think this was, and a lot of people were saying, oh, we'll read the story, that's great, send it to us and we'll consider it. And they read it and they came back to me and said, no. I honestly think this was the most read story before it was ever published within our industry that year because everybody was reading it and nobody was taking it. And then I finally found a second outlet to run it. um, And I worked with an amazing editor. I still love that editor and I don't wanna name the outlet, because I it'll, I don't want to put her in an awkward position. We went through fact checking, we went through legal, again, same thing, we went through fact checking, we went through legal, it was months, it was ready to go. They didn't use my photos, they grabbed some photos that, that I thought were actually like really insensitive and borderline racist, and were grabbing some stock photos of tribes that were not Crow, and stereotypical imagery of non-Crow tribes people in native dress and i'm like well this story isn't about that (laughs) these are not crow members and you can't just substitute in you know like it was a mess and then they had it and they're like okay we i fought them and it took months and we finally had a story that was ready to go and then they got a new editor-in-chief and the new editor-in-chief came from more of a pop clickbait style of I don't want to say reporting because I don't necessarily think that's reporting, but um, of writing. And so I was, her job is basically the editor-in-chief is just to be like, okay, yeah, it's it's fine. You've gone through legal. We've had, you know, all of this. And instead she went in and, and we were in a shared Google Drive. And so I'm watching in real time that she was just going in and rewriting it. And in the act of rewriting it, she was putting in racist stereotypes she was taking out things she was changing things so that it was no longer factually accurate and to your question of integrity this was these were stories that had been entrusted to me and i was then entrusting it to this outlet and this outlet was not worthy of that trust and so i got to a point where i pulled it and so now we're a year on a year and a half on it still doesn't have a home stories still haven't been told. I'm literally dreaming of these missing people every night. I had seen their photos. I had heard their stories. I think it is fair to say that I was haunted by them. I could not rest until this story. I stopped eating. Um, at one point I, you know, stopped working on anything else except this. I moved out of my apartment and moved in with friends. I mean, this story consumed me and I reached out to CJ And I said, hey, listen, just a heads up, like I have not, because as far as they know, I just came and visited them and then never did anything, right? They don't know that this is happening on my end. And so I reached out to him and said, you know, hey, just a heads up, like I'm still working on this. This is not, I haven't forgotten you. This is still really important. And he said, that's okay. We're used to people not delivering on what they promise. And it just shattered me. I just, in a million pieces, it just absolutely shattered me. And finally found Al Jazeera, which I love writing for Al Jazeera. I've written for them on and off for probably about 10 years now. And got got an editor who immediately got the piece and got what we were trying to do and understood the importance of the story and gave the story the space and the time that it deserved. And of course we had to go through, you know, fact checking again and legal again and, and all of that again, which is totally fair. Um, but at that point, I think close to two years had gone by and, you know, we did some updates. I think I was ultimately paid maybe four or $500. I mean, nothing at this point, it really was not the money that was driving me, but the fact that it took that much, both on the Crow's part and on my part, to get this story out there has fundamentally changed me. I mean, it's really just, how would you not care about that? How could you not care about that? Like, I can understand in this day and age, local reporting, you know, the budgets are less. I know as a freelancer, the budgets have shrunk over years, I I maybe get if you can say, like, we can't send a full crew out to Montana for a month to do this story. Like, I I understand that. But here I was, I had done the work, I, you know, I'm I'm an experienced journalist, I have a history of doing investigations like this. Handing gift wrapping and handing this big investigation and saying I don't you don't even need to pay me like just run it and and they wouldn't and that to me when the Gabby Petito thing happened and when she went missing and all of the coverage that was the first thing that I thought of was people are still going missing they're going missing everywhere and we've set we've set it up so that it is not it does not incentivize media outlets to do this kind of reporting.
1: What really triggered my memory of your piece, besides how great it was, because I first read it, I don't know, probably two years ago now. But it was actually a picture in this piece, as great as your writing is, and you're a fantastic writer. Uh, And it's a picture you took. And And where we've spent the last two years of media being driven by pictures of protest, from the performative and silly to the very violent and very historically meaningful, the photo of these folks, these tribal folks, Protesting on a highway in the middle of nowhere, um, carrying their tribal flags, and there's only a handful of them. There's nowhere anywhere near them. This isn't for attention. There, I mean, this is this is something that I don't know if you took it with your camera or your phone, but it, it's it's it it just struck me when I started seeing the Gabby Petito thing, and I remembered that picture, and I'm yeah. like, those that's not a protest for attention. That's a protest of we don't know what else to do, but we can do this. And that's how it came across to me for those folks. And it's such a powerful image of there's nothing else they can do except just hold their flag and hold their hand up and march forward. And it was such a striking image. And it kind of brought it back to the Gabby Petito thing of what do you do when you when you have no hope and you ended your piece in the the piece in Al Jazeera of, you know, you got to give these people some hope. Where do you find hope And that image? Those are people just making their own hope, marching down the highway in the middle of Montana where there's nobody within 50 miles any direction, is it?
7: Well, so the thing about that that was so fascinating to me is, you know, so we talk about Highway 90, which runs through, and it's the main thoroughfare. It's where all the trucks go, and it's all of that. But, you know, there's a second road outside of Crow. Um, there's 87, and then it's it's a two-lane highway, and a lot of the trucks, and it, goes to, it turns into 212. And so a lot of the trucks kind of, do that road, right? Um, because it's there's not, you know, state troopers waiting on either end of Crow Tribe. You kind of can do your thing, but it's a it's a narrow two lane highway, and people have gone missing on that highway and they've been killed on that highway, and so these protesters, these marchers, had you know three or four of them and a a follow truck with a porta potty and then another follow truck with like the kids and the you know coolers and that sort of thing. And they had a BIA officer who was a member of the Crow tribe. And they marched through, Crow ter- through Cheyenne territory, which is their neighboring tribe, to Crow. And Cheyenne and Crow have, you know, their history, right? At neighboring tribes with shared borders often do. But they have the same issue. And so they, they joined together to do, to do this march. But the thing that really just struck me was people had to slow down and go around them. Because there is there was plenty of traffic, there's, you know, plenty of cars and trucks and most people were respectful. Most people, um, you know, honked their support, a couple were jerks that you'll have anywhere. Right. But there were these two motorcyclists and, you know, white men of a certain age, probably in their 60s. It's Memorial Day weekend. I think they were on their way to Sturgis. And they were taking this road and they saw us and they pulled off up ahead and they stopped and they were basically just gawking, right? This was a tourist attraction for them. This was one more thing that they were going to see on their trip and that they were going to tell their friends about. And they basically stopped and waited at this little cutout on the side of the road for the parade, the protesters to catch up with them. And when we all joined them, I was incredibly uncomfortable. I was very aware that those men were looking for a spectacle, that they didn't know anything about these this tribe, they didn't know anything about these missing women, they didn't really care, they just saw some really cool people with some cool flags. And so I was cringing, I was just, you know. And the reason the protesters stopped at that spot was because that was a spot, the little pull off on the side of the road where one of the bodies of one of the members of their tribes had been found years ago. And so they stopped at this spot for a moment of prayer, and reflection and quiet. And this was a sacred space for them. And here are these two motorcycle guys just gawking at them. And rather than being offended and rather than being, you know, asking them to move along, they took the time. They explained to them what was going on. Then they invited them into their prayer circle. And after praying for the remains and to be found of all the missing, either alive or not and praying for the souls of the the people that had passed away which itself is incredibly moving and i was very choked up they then took a moment to pray for the safety of these two men on their journey and i thought god that is grace that is i that is humility and kindness and graciousness that i don't know that i would have in that situation But they saw those two men as emissaries. They were gawking and they were tourists. But you know what? Those were two more people that were going to go out into the world and say, members of the Crow and Cheyenne tribes are going missing. And you should know about that. And so they took that opportunity as a gift. And they took it as a means to continue to share their message. So that, to me, when you talk about the integrity of reporting, that's the spirit those are the things that i draw inspiration from right is it's very easy in jur- journalism to get caught up in the ego and the byline and the money which there's not much unless you're you know at the like the 10% of our field but it's very easy to kind of track those things or to go after those things or to think that those are the things that show that you've been successful i look at my body of work And I'm really proud of some of the stories that I've done. And at the end of the day, can I say I did this story justice? I think that there is no justice to this story. Um, The fact that it's still happening, the fact that it's not covered everywhere means there's no justice to this story. I could spend the rest of my life writing about this story, and there would still not be justice. I mean, until every single member is found and accounted for and every single perpetrator is, you know, held to account and every person that does anything against any Indigenous person in this country and in countries around the world is held to account. I mean, that's justice. And I don't know that we'll have that. But at the end of the day, there was a story that I feel like I did my small part to get out into the world and the fact that you know about it and the fact that we're talking about it, I have to take some sort of grace from that.
3: For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly
4: and easily find what you need. Plus. You can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger
2: for the ones who get it done. And that'll do it for
1: heard Tell. Did it a little different today, but that's important. Look, one of the things we do if we're gonna turn down the noise of the news is we can't just hit stories and move away from them. We need to reflect. We need to review, so a year later, after all those viral stories are gone, it's good to go back and reflect on it. See what we got right, see what we got wrong, do a little self-adjustment. That's the grown folk way of doing these cultural stories, these political stories, these breaking news stories. It's what we're always going to try to do here. We'd love to hear feedback from you. show at gmail.com. show on the Twitter. Also, comments and reviews in any of the platforms that you're watching or listening to the program. We do see those love to interact with you on those. We'd love to hear from you because if you ain't listening and watching, we ain't got nobody to talk to. This is a partnership and we appreciate you very much for however it is. You spend your time with us. We always want to respect it. We never want to waste your time. So we bring you the stories that matter like this one that we covered today with the great Molly McCluskey. Till we see you again. On Tell wherever you and yours are, across the street or around the world, we hope you are well. We hope you are well-fed. We hope this story makes you hug your loved ones just a little bit more. We'll talk to you about it next time on more HerdTel. All the music on tell is
2: provided under a creative content license from Monstercat.com.